Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, February 13, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So the day after the Super Bowl is probably the day more people call in sick than um, you can imagine. Did you have an issue? <laughs> I did. I wasn't going to call in sick, but I was almost uh, it was almost out of my control to be here on time this morning. I had a dead battery. Car, okay. car would not start. So. A, lot of, a lot of excuses. Reminds yeah. me of the time when I had many employees, and the day after the Super Bowl, there were a lot of dead batteries, and the train caught them on their way to work. And <laughs> but, but you'll know, you'll note I'm here, you're and here. we're on the air on time. You're here. What, do you want a cookie? Uh, no, no, <laughs> nope. Uh, so so I, I went back um, yesterday <laughs> afternoon and tried cookie, to... Cookie would be okay. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I got a couple over here. Uh, right, I, got, right. I got a three-pack. There you go. Three okay. left of a six-pack. Okay. Get that little energy shot that gets me to the Celsius in the 9 o'clock hour. Um, I went back yesterday and looked about the, um, the American infatuation with football. And it actually goes back to John Adams, the second American president. Really? Um, yeah. Abigail, his dear wife, wrote a letter. Um, the Continental Army was playing football. Now, back then, it would have been a little bit different, and it would have been in the global sense of football. Um, in and around Boston, so much during their idle time that Adam's wife, Abigail, complained about it. There's actually a memorialized letter. You ready? This continent has paid thousands to officers and men who have been loitering about playing football and nine pins, bowling, I guess, and doing their own private business whilst they ought to have been defending our forts who are now suffering for their neglect. That's Abigail in a letter to John Adams in 1777. Nathan Hale, the famous Revolutionary War soldier who became a spy, noted in his diary that he spent his free time playing football and checkers while stationed in Cambridge, Cambridge Massachusetts, in 1775, Hale's friends reflected he was such a good kicker, he could kick a football over the trees. So the um, the American infatuation has always been um, football. I read something yesterday on Twitter. Take it for what it's worth. I don't know how accurate it is or not. I certainly didn't do the research. But it, it reflected that 27 of the 29 most watched television events on network television were football games. Let me say that again. 27 of 29 of the most watched events, that includes everything that network television broadcasts, were live football games. NFL, a few college, but the majority were NFL games. Um, the networks would probably go under if it weren't for football. I mean, seriously, uh, I actually tweeted yesterday, the grotesquely masculine game of football, the obnoxiously masculine game of football is the only thing that keeps network television from going under. So you've got the, um, the woke and politically correct, depending on the grotesque, obscene, um, toxic masculinity of football to keep them paying their bills. <laughs> you know what it tells me, Rev? Everybody's got a price. Everybody sure. has a price. You got to believe that some of the, um, some of the newsrooms and network television, uh, boardrooms are populated with people who buy into this, you know, toxic masculinity and the wokeness and the political correctness until they look at the bottom line. And they say, you know, for me to be on the board at CBS, CBS has to prosper and flourish and at least have some degree of market share. Um, and they pay me $350,000 to sit on this corporate board. Um, I'm not crazy about football, but I can deal with it. I mean, there are certain caveman 
certain cavemen in the world <laughs> and cave women to some degree that I'm, that ascribe to the notions of the violence, the grotesque masculinity that is on um. But on like you display. said, the answer is money. Yeah, the answer is always money. Uh, now, uh, what's the question? Uh, although I will, uh, I will go ahead and point out. I'm glad I'm here on time, so the show would get on the air on time, and I could point out. I think through the course of last week, we had a few conversations. Uh, a pick here or there. Who do we think was going to win? And and I think out of everyone, you, me, the guests that you asked, I was the only one who actually picked the Chiefs to win. You were the smart guy. <laughs> I, I, you picked the. I, I uh, guessed the, right. What if you picked the proven commodity, the quarterback of the Chiefs? Um, kind of a questionable hole. I didn't. I fell asleep. I mean, I fell asleep at about middle of third quarter. Really? I don't have much of an interest in either of those teams. Me neither. I mean, I, I but, just but don't. I, I stayed up. I watched the whole thing. In fact. This, this may be a little weird, but I had eaten so oh, so, so many nachos during the game. I was uncomfortably full, so I had to take a, a neighborhood walk after the game before I felt like I could get in bed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I went to bed at halftime. I kept the TV on mute, and I kind of refreshed some of the stories I uh, reviewed during the I mean, I tell you, the weekend's kind of weird for me. I want to check out of politics, but I have to kind of keep engaged. Uh, it seems like every time I went online – there was another balloon getting shot down <laughs> or something, you know, and, um, and then Chuck Schumer's on the, uh, on the airs talking about how embarrassed the Chinese government is. I just don't oh, buy that me. the Chinese government's very embarrassed. There's actually an article I read. I wrote the title of it. The media's, the, the media's power to change observable reality. Let me say that again. The media's power to change observable reality. And I, I guess that the, the liberals in America today feel that they have conditioned the American public into believing that the media is telling you the truth that they can go out and say some of the most outlandish and nonsensical things imaginable and get away with it. I mean, Chuck Schumer to say that the Chinese are obviously embarrassed. That's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. But I mean, once again, the media and its power to change observable reality. How many people believe Chuck Schumer just because he opposed Trump? How many people believe Chuck Schumer just because he advocates for CRT or some of these other, um, you know, leftist agenda issues? I don't know the answer to that, but um, but there's nothing the Chinese have to be embarrassed about. Here's the scary part, Rev, and I mean this sincerely. I don't freak out much. I don't spook real easily. Um, I let a lot of these political stories run off my back because I, I, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever. Uh, Keith Olbermann, whatever. It doesn't matter no. to me. Jake, T whatever. Chuck, T whatever. I mean, I, I engage because it's part of my job. George Stephanopoulos, whatever. <laughs> whatever Stephanopoulos. You just kind of chuckle because mm -hmm. you feel like once you become an old hand at this, that there's some degree of uh, humor that you find in what he's trying to do. You know what Stephanopoulos is trying to do. But this does this make me a little nervous. Nobody from the White House has expressed um, with clarity what happened. Um, what had happened was we don't know. We, we don't have any idea. Um, we have some understanding of what happened last week with the balloon that made its way across Alaska into Canadian airspace into Billings, Montana. It was um, because we saw it. We yeah. saw what happened. Well, I mean, we saw the, it float over. The, we saw it get shot down. The public noticed the balloon in Billings, Montana, uh, reported it to a local media outlet. The local media outlet engaged its audience. Its audience became kind of national, and we, uh, with, with some degree of uh, intrigue, watched a balloon just meander across the United States of America until it got to the coast of Myrtle Beach, uh, Surfside Beach, to be exact and precise, and it was shot down. Um, and then we get a report 
that an unidentified flying object, I mean, what else is it called? I mean, the, the federal government will not tell us what it is. The White House has made no disclosure. Um, I think John Kirby basically reported um, from the Department of Defense that, you know, we got everything handled. Don't you worry about it. I mean, everything's buttoned up and, um, and then nothing to be concerned about here. I just don't, I mean, the, the incompetence of this, of this administration is beyond the realm. And you, I mean, thought, it, you would have thought that the president in the traditional pre-Super Bowl interview that he does with the uh, the network that covers the Super Bowl, he would have addressed that. Um, although I was I was looking for that interview, I was going to watch that because I thought it might come up. That's a pretty important topic to, to national security. And uh, and, and I, I must have missed the interview. I don't know. I think it, he th- agreed. Correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. He agreed to go on Fox Soul. There's a there's okay. a there's a Fox subsidiary called Soul, and it attracts a uh, you know an African American audience. And he had agreed in uh, to some degree to go on Fox Soul, but then they had some sort of dispute about how long, what time, who you. Um, Fox wanted Brett Baer, and I think uh, Joe Biden didn't agree to allow Baer to be the host of the interview. So it was somebody else to that was going to do it for Fox. So I don't want I don't I don't know. I mean. It, but but you're right. The president normally sits down with Fox News or or the network, whoever's covering it, whoever's CBS covering it, or whatever, and they do an interview to kind yeah. of um you know hey it's it, tradition. It's Super Bowl Sunday. It's a big day for America. I'm the American president, but they're not going to let this guy not be in control. It's of pretty the, cowardice. Well, I mean, it's, it's smart. I mean, it's incredibly bright to not let Joe Biden go speak to a to an interviewer who has the power to ask legitimate questions. And what does that say about I mean, you know uh, if, what if that's it says. smart, then what well, does I mean, that say about it? It's brilliant. Our- I mean, why would you, if you were Joe Biden's handler and you had any degree of control over who he sits down with and what sort of conversations he has, you guard him with every fiber of, of your being. You can't let a demented old man sit down with, with a legitimate reporter or news broadcaster and field questions. You can't. I mean, he doesn't have the coherence to answer these questions. Here's what they're really afraid of. That he gets angry and gets real aggressive and defiant like he does the State of the Union for that yeah. second, that mere moment. It was like, wow, that's out there. You know, the, the, the irateness he expresses and the defiance he expresses. And, I mean, you can't let that guy sit down. I mean, if you're looking after Joe Biden's political best interest, forget America's because they don't care about America's best interest. I mean, they're, they're, they're working for Joe Biden. They don't work for the good old U.S. of A. Rev. That's what you got to figure out. I mean, they're not employed by the United States. I mean, their checks are, and we, the taxpayer, pay those people to do their job, but they're not beholden to the American people. They're beholden to Joe Biden. They're beholden to Donald Trump. And there's no way if you're beholden to Joe Biden, you let that demented old man have a conversation with anybody that may get off script a bit. Uh, Remember how many times have you seen Biden ask a question without saying, hey, they told me I'm supposed to ask, you know, Dave Baker from Wake Up Carolina. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. it's your turn. And he's already got, I mean, the, he knows the question. Every time. They've written Seems the like. answer down, but you're not going to let that guy sit down. Um, I mean, what do you expect out of a president? To answer legitimate questions? Come on, Rev. <laughs> I mean, what do you think he is, leader of the free world or something? We appear to be under some sort yeah, of attack. I mean, I mean, what do you think this guy is, commander-in-chief of the largest military in the history of mankind? Come on, <laughs> cutting some slack. He's an 82-year-old or an 80-year-old demented old man who just happens to be staggered around the White House in control of absolutely nothing but a figurehead that suggests he's control of everything. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Now here's the question, kid. Were we really that stupid all of this time? Because for one thing, I mean, 
Let's ask a question. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. First call on a Monday morning. Let's ask ourselves this question. As patriotic as you and I may be, or as non-patriotic as you or I may be, who has the odds on a war between China and America today? I mean, all things considered, I mean, as informed as we are, and, and Breeze doesn't know really how informed he is. I don't know really how informed I am. I know what I read. I know what I suspect. I know we spend nearly a trillion dollars, roughly $900 billion on our um on our military and defense spending, I know China spends somewhere around three hundred billion. So we're spending about three times as much on our military as they are. Um, supersonic jets, inter- intercontinental ballistic missile. I mean that you know we we have the edge on all these departments. And I'm talking about you know categories of. In other words, if you're a um if you're someone who doesn't really understand the intricacies of defense, that would be me. I mean I don't I don't want to read. I mean, I know that we spend this much of our GDP. China spends that much of their GDP. What sort of advantages do we have? What sort of advantages does China have? If we were doing a tale of the tape, the United States versus China, who wins the Cold War? Excuse me, who wins an eventual war between those um, superpowers? Because it's easy to argue we are a superpower. The world has categorized us as a superpower. Are we? I mean, we're the preeminent superpower on the planet. We debated Social Security and Medicare last week. And the loudest applause line at the State of the Union address was when our two political parties' leadership agreed that we're not going to monkey around with the program that we know is insolvent. I mean, we know this is unsustainable, yet that's the one thing we agreed on. The political leadership with ours beside their name and the political leadership with D's beside their name agreed that the only thing we're going to continue to support is something that we both know to be unsustainable. I mean, where's the political courage? Where's the political aptitude? Where's the political abilities? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But they continue to ding the American taxpayer 
to the tune of about $900 billion annually to, um, I don't know, Rev, uh, some, I think Jeff said last week, it is our job to police the world. I think we've had another couple of callers kind of agree, um, directly and indirectly, it is our job to police the world. Um, how good a job are we doing policing the world? I mean, I read a lot over the weekend about Ukraine and some of the happenings and, um, and, and you know, some of the conversations that Ukraine had with NATO that led up to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But ask yourself that simple question as we go to break. I mean, you know, I've lived my entire life. I was born in 1963. This is the 60th year I've been alive. I've lived my entire life with very little worry or concern as to what would happen if somebody chose to go to war with the United States of America. Am I naive to believe that? Am I oblivious to the realities and facts on the ground about what would happen if America and China engaged in some degree of military conflict? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I know what the answer should be because one, tr- one country spends $300 billion, the other spends $900 billion. That means $1.8 trillion in two years to $600 billion. You see where I'm headed? I mean, eventually that compounding effect should lead to one country just being a behemoth and the other not so much. How many of you really believe that? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. It's kind of a weird question to throw out first thing on a Monday morning, especially after, you know, a hotly contested Super Bowl. Who would win? I mean, that's a little bit childish. You know, who would win, my daddy or your daddy? My daddy can beat your daddy up. My big brother can beat your big brother up. But in all seriousness, I mean, we, haven't we been conditioned to believe that there is no rival? I mean, once we yeah, won we the have. Cold War, I mean, we, we earned our medal. We earned our keep. We, we are superior to anybody around the world. And, and, you know, the one thing we don't concern ourselves with much, Reb, is some foreign invasion. I mean, the commitments and, 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 and devotions we've made to our military, to our armed forces, to our defense budget have just left any of that off limits. I mean, there, there's, I mean you better never consider taking on the big bad yeah, that, that United was handled, States of America. Issue. In, in, in fact, the new warfare was different. It was terrorism but, and, but, I mean, and different but, things but, we were trying to defend, defend from. But nothing can cover but for so much incompetence. I mean, if we're spending right. $100 billion in Ukraine, we left $6 billion worth of fighting equipment in Afghanistan, and we're letting balloons enter our airspace off the coast of Alaska? Really? So we have the, we have the horsepower to leave $6 billion worth of fighting equipment in Afghanistan. I mean, we just left. I mean, left it there. Do something with it. What, what do you mean do something with it? Well, you guys just figured out. I mean, it's $6 billion off our books. We, we, don't have the, um, we, we don't have the ability to retrieve it and bring it back and catalog it and put it back in our arsenal. So you guys just fight over it. Now, I understand that we, um, we demobilize some of the equipment. I mean, I've read that. You know, we, um, we, we scramble some of the computer systems and some of the software is inoperative now. But there's $6 billion worth of uh, military hardware we left in Afghanistan. We've already spent nearly $100 billion in Ukraine, but we can't stop a balloon from making its way into U.S. airspace off the coast of Alaska? Really? Let's go we, to the phone. We can't or well, I mean, we, I, didn't, I don't for, we chose not I, I, to I don't have any idea. Reason. I don't have any idea. The government won't tell us what they're doing. Exactly. I mean, it, it's not government airspace. It's the United States of America's airspace. Guess who has a right to know what, when, when your, your safety or well-being is at risk? We the people. I mean, the government owes you, the White House, in my opinion, the president of the United States owes you an explanation as to what's going on uh, on our Canadian border 
and our most western border. Well, I guess Hawaii would be a little further west than uh, than Alaska. And and we've heard crickets, nothing from this administration. And I think it reeks of incompetence. It's just rank incompetence. It's, it's people in that White House who just don't know what they're doing. I mean, I, I'd love to say it's um. I mean, it's, to some degree, it's diabolical, but the majority of it's just incompetence. I mean, it's an it's an eighty year old man running an executive branch with, with, with a bunch of ideologues, progressive ideologues working under him. Morons. I mean, well, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, they're conservative morons, but they're not in course, charge right yeah. now. But I mean, if you heard Kamala Harris articulate these uh, these electric buses, I want to play that this morning. And then the black lesbian is on a friendly network, and she was talking about NORAD, and, you know, she didn't say Canadians or, or Canada. She said Canadians or uh, just something. Uh, wow. And um, and I'm doing <laughs> some of this. The majority I do about NORAD is ad lib. And and she's there as a spokesperson of the White House. And she's a communications expert. And had no clue. <laughs> had no clue at all. Once again, the media's power to change observable reality is profound. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Good morning. You said something, Ken, this morning that was really struck a chord with me. You said that uh, you talked about how Jeff is, you know, all about that, that we need to be the world. Hey, we're, we're, we're losing yeah, you, Dale. We can't Can you get saying. to a better place and call right back, or we'll hold on for a second while you get to a better place. We're hearing about only third word. And when you said I said something interesting, I want to hear what yeah, I said. Yeah, we got, that was interesting. Got to make sure we have a clear connection for that. I didn't think I said anything yet thus far that was interesting. Can you, are you still there, Dale? Okay, we lost him. Maybe he'll call yeah. back. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is that number. See the light blinking. Uh, maybe that's him again. But we couldn't hardly hear. But about every third or fourth word, it might have been the um, the Chinese scrambling Dale's call between um, yours truly and and him. Is he back on? Rip? Yeah. Okay, let's go there. Hey Dale, you there? Okay, so the the, the um. Well, now I gotta get my thoughts back together. Um, <laughs> what what did Ken say that really uh, struck you? <laughs> That's what he wants well, to hear. Let me start with this first. Let me start with this first. Then, uh, so, don't you think part of it is they're having to wait for China to tell them what to do? I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. But the thing that you said that really struck me, Ken, is you said that Jeff made a comment that yes, we indeed knew, we indeed need, and. Uh, it just it struck me how Democrats will, just like a little minor bird, they will sit there and repeat whatever their leadership says and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. When have you ever heard a Democrat say that, yes, the U.S. needs to be the world's policeman? That was always a conservative point of view. But now that this administration is saying it, of course, they're going to go ahead and parrot whatever their bosses say. One of the biggest differences to me between the two parties is that we will go ahead and we will disagree on the conservative side with our leadership. I know because I do it. I've heard you guys do it. I've heard almost every single call from conservatives come in disagreeing with our side. And, Ken, when you said, yeah, Jeff made the comment the other day that we should be the world's police officer, I thought, Yep, and he is just saying what his daddy told him to say. Whatever that 
you know, the mainstream news media puts out, which is whatever the Democrat Party puts out, which is whatever the Chinese tell them to put out. You see where I'm going with sure it? Sure, I, I mean, thank good you. Lord. Well, th- thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. Well, and I, and I believe we've entered an era in American politics where the, the credentialed opinion carries the day for the left. In other words, um, he went to the. Remember the story I told you guys about when I got in politics? One of the first things I recognized that was uniquely different than my business world was how many people would say to me, they went to UNC Chapel Hill. They went to Duke. They went to Georgia Tech Engineering School. I never heard that in the business world. I mean, when I meet some of the most successful business people ever, they they never said, I mean, it it was always, you know, um, he owns the factory that does X or she owns the business that does Y. When I got in politics and, and began hanging around a lot of uh, bureaucratic inclined people, it, it dawned on me one day how many times someone would say, you know, they went to Duke. They graduated from Harvard. Um, yeah, his brother-in-law went to Duke, but he went to Vanderbilt. And they gave so much credence to that degree, that, that credential, that, that um, you know, appearance of being an expert. And I think the liberal left have sold their soul to credentialism or the um, – we talk a lot about the managed decline of America. I mean, you know, there's kind of a theory on the American political right. The American conservative, uh, Rod Dreher in particular, espouses this, that the American political left are really trying to manage a pretty dramatic decline of America. And and it, it, it requires this um the media's power to change observable reality and how gullible the American people are. I don't know if it's gullible. I want to be a good soldier. I want to be a good teammate. And if, and if six papers have been written about transgenderism and all six of these authors have credentials, then how can I break rank? I can't. I mean, it can be, you know, girls are not really girls and boys are not really boys. And, and, and a liberal and I can debate, I'm going, come on, dude, you don't believe that. He said, well, I mean, I did read in the Harvard Review and I read in the Stanford Medical Document and I read. In other words, they put a lot of um, influence. They, they put a lot of um, credence in the influential opinions of thought leaders on the American political left just because they're credentialed the vaccine would be a great example of that um there were some experts out there that the left held in high regard and they were the ones that said go get the vaccine i mean the vaccine is safe the vaccine is durable the vaccine has no side effects how do i know that i mean a a skeptical conservative would say how do i know that well the, the 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 leftist thought leader said it was, and there was consensus amongst the leftist thought leaders that the vaccine was safe. And and, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because I believe this with every fiber of my being when it comes to the vaccine in particular. It's it's easier to hoodwink somebody than it is convince them they've been hoodwinked. I mean, once you buy in, I mean, you're in. In other words, if you're a liberal, and, and you know, the, 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 the leftist side of politics was saying the vaccine is safe and it's durable. And you kind of bought into that and you chastise your conservative friends who didn't get vaccinated because they were putting your health at risk, your life at risk, your um, the, the organizational structures of your life were in turmoil because these rambunctious Trumpsters. I mean, let's be honest, the MAGA movement were the ones that said, I'm not going to get vaccinated. So see, Rev, when, when you've got the, well, when you perceive yourself, and this goes back to Obama, I mean, this isn't Biden, nobody on the left believe Biden is a really bright person. I mean, he's the president, but nobody, I mean, 
I don't want to call names here, but I've got a handful of friends of mine who are leftist. They had a high degree of respect for Obama's acumen. They don't for Biden. I mean, they know Biden's a dunce. And they, they kind of sort of question themselves how he got 81 million votes. I mean, they do. I mean, it, it would be subconsciously, and it would be without me knowing they are. But I've got some liberal friends that I know question <laughs> the, um, the realities of what happened in 2020. When you go through some of the statistical anomalies and ballot harvesting and unsolicited mail-in ballots, I mean, they, you know, to some degree, they know what's up. But they can't put their reputation at risk, Rev. They've already bought in Trump bad, orange man bad, the vaccine is good, um, you know, a boy and a boy and a girl and a girl and transgender. I mean, they, 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 they bought into this because there's a certain intellectualism about it. And it's, it's, it's more important for them to be respected in that world of intelligentsia than it is to be right. Forget being right or wrong. I want to be appreciated and respected and admired and well thought of. And the way to do that is just kind of agree with Fauci or agree with whomever these intellectual thought leaders are on the left. And, and, and I mean, uh, Dale's right. The right will break ranks. I mean, the right, you know, the, there, there's big debates on the right about the vaccine. I mean, there are probably as many thought leaders on the right that disagree about the vaccine as there are that agree. I mean, I've seen a lot of thought leaders on the right that say, go get the vaccine. It's smart. It makes sense. I've seen a lot of the intellectual right-leaning uh, you know, communicators or commentators say, no, there's a lot of questions to be asked here. But on the left, I mean, it, it never happens. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, how many people on the left today have a problem with the White House not addressing national security? None. Why? Because that's just the way they roll. I mean, they buy into this hook, line, and sinker. They're on the same team. Well, sure they are. Of course they are. And it's easy to be on that team because every organized force is kind of aiding and abetting and assisting to some degree you know, where you want the country to head. Um, we talk about how liberal the media has become. We talk about how, I mean, I'll say this. I keep telling myself how important it is to watch the Sunday morning shows to prepare for this show. But after I watch the Sunday morning show, I realize I just wasted two hours of my time. <laughs> I mean, I do every time. It's, it's almost like one of these days I'm going to say, I'm not watching it because it's not worth it. But because of what they historically have been known as, I sit down and I watch the Sunday morning shows because I think it helps me do a better job on Monday morning when I sit behind this microphone. It does not. I'm convinced it does not. So I'm a little bit guilty of what I accuse the left of being guilty of. These things that I'm just supposed to do because that's the way things are supposed uh, to work out. Takes Mondays to make Fridays 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. I've already made my first mistake. I think I said there was six or seven or eight billion dollars worth of military equipment left in Afghanistan. I've had two texts. One said eighty-five billion, the other said eighty-eight billion. I know I'm not right at five six seven. I wonder who's right at eighty-five. I had read seven. Yeah, that's what I thought. Seven billion. But somebody I had a couple of texts, one said eighty-five billion. The other eighty-eight billion. See, we communicate in real time. We debate <laughs> some of these issues. We disagree with one another on some of these, um, some of what these issues are. Let's go to the phone. And, and and we may make a mistake very occasionally. Well, I mean, it, it ain't it ain't uncommon <laughs> for us to get something wrong on Wake Up Carolina. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. Uh, I tell you, Ken, 
Um, I'm a little bit hoarse this morning, but uh, that uh, you, you don't don't let anybody fool you. You're the captain of common sense. You know, you 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 got a handle on things that people can't necessarily see. But every, even you miss one or two things. I mean, there's so much going on, so much craziness, so much just over the top corruption. It's unbelievable. I mean, it it makes uh it. it the situation is we had a situation where 51 of our most esteemed intelligence uh, officers and uh, leaders and and directors came out and wrote a letter and signed it saying all these things. And basically at the behest of the communist Chinese is all I can figure, which define them as traitors. I mean, they say, oh, well, a lot of them are veterans are veterans. Well, I want to tell you, Benedict Arnold was a veteran. He was a general. He was a very good general for uh, our side for a while, and he was very effective on the other side, too, when he switched sides. They, uh, we, we've got a corruption problem and a common sense problem. These people are just beyond dumb. And I, but the corruption is absolutely rampant. The entire media, except for a little bit of Fox News and a few other outlets, has just uh, rolled over and become a propaganda wing for whatever the liberal, uh, the liberal, uh, I guess, thought of the day is. You know, uh, a man can be a woman, a woman can be a man. You can change your genetics. You can change everything. You. Can, you can change where the the sea meets the land, you know. It it, and we're out there killing whales for no reason that I can see at all, and killing killing birds on land, and all in the name of greenness and sustainable energy. And these people wouldn't know uh, energy transmission or radiation from power lines from. Uh, from their hind end, tell you the truth. Well, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And I'll go back to a couple of things that were said over the weekend. And I don't know the answer to this. When does incompetence turn into corruption? I mean, it doesn't sound like to me Kamala Harris is corrupt. She may be. I mean, I understand a lot of people think that's the way she ended up where she ended up in her in her political career. I mean, she's one of a few vice presidents in the history of our nation. That's a pretty exclusive club. So to suggest that she is not someone of accomplishment is being disingenuous. I mean, she is an accomplished woman. How did she accomplish that? We can debate. But but it appears to me, Rev, that she is not in on the fix. She's not one of these intellectual heavyweights who's playing chess, trying to make it sound like she's playing checkers. In, in other words, I didn't know any better. You know, that, that there's a dumb like a fox, I guess is what I'm saying here. She just sounds dumb. I mean, she just sounds real dumb in some of her pronouncements, some of the speeches she gives, some of the addresses. Um, with Biden, you don't know. You don't know if Biden's playing dumb uh, because he's corrupt. Because I don't think there's any question that Joe Biden is corrupt. I mean, his family's corrupt. I don't think there's much of a of a question there. But but it is interesting when when Mike says, um, "Where does we well, didn't say this?" But I'm infer where does the where does the incompetence end and the corruption begin? Where, where does um KJP the black lesbian where, where does her incompetence end? And the corruption began. In other words, is she there 
appearing to not know what she's talking about because it makes it, I mean, that's kind of an out. Well, I mean, that lady didn't know any better. How many times have we heard that? Well, they just didn't know any better. And then some people appear to not know any better when they absolutely know better. Um, how many Democrats are running interference for Joe Biden? Don't have any idea. I don't have any idea what the answer to that question is. But I think you've got to consider when competence or when incompetence ends and corruption begins. I believe with every fiber of my being that the Bidens are, are corrupt. To some degree, they're incompetent, but the majority of Joe's incompetence is, is a bit duncey. And it's kind of old now. You, you got an old man who's always been somewhat of a dunce, and now he's just got some pretty serious cognitive issues because why, Rev? Because he's got real old. I mean, he's 80 years old, going on 81 years old. I looked over the weekend. If we elect an 82-year-old to be our president, we're electing someone that there ain't but about 8 million of them. There's only about 8 million uh, 82-year-olds in America. I think about 20% of the population in America is over the age of 80. That means you got a 20 percenter representing, you know, a, a nation with a median age of 36 or 7 or 8 or somewhere thereabout. That's kind of a square peg in a round hole, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? But, but once again, don't underestimate the media and academia's power to change uh, observable reality. And I mean that because if, 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 if MSNBC says that Joe Biden has taken a cognitive exam and he passed with flying colors, their listeners will believe it. I mean, they'll absolutely believe it um, and, and, and not question anything that comes out of the mouth of a Rachel Maddow or an, what's her name or his name, Ari Meiber. Uh, they, they've got a couple of other. Oh. Um, yeah, I don't even know. Well, I mean, they, they've got some. Um, they got some intellectuals over at MSNBC. Okay, take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Brian and Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey guys. Uh, yesterday evening, I had a chance to listen to Biden's speech uh, for the State of the Union, and unlike uh, national media that. that breaks the uh, or shuts down the volume from the crowd they actually played the volume of uh, the reaction of the, of the senators and, and uh, representatives to what biden was saying and it was very entertaining to hear how much jeering he got during that uh, speech and, and uh, i wish i wish the media would play that because it would show that uh, not everybody in, the, in in congress agrees with that idiot thank you appreciate that yeah I've heard an unfiltered um, audio from inside the chamber, and it's much noisier and rambunctious than the media led you to believe. Really? Well, I, have, I haven't and, and heard that. Again, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I mean, we, we live in a different era of American politics. I mean, Trump kind of broke the mold in what is acceptable or what is not. Uh, remember Pelosi tearing up the State of the Union? Uh, remember, what, what was it, all the... Um, the ladies in the Democrat or the ladies on the Democrat side. That's right. Wore those white. Wore the white dresses yeah. or gowns or whatever one day. So, I mean, what has been historically accepted and what is recently accepted are, are kind of two in, two different things. The problem with Biden, and, and this is where you really get confused, or I get confused. Um, I think Biden's incompetent and corrupt. I just don't worry. I don't know where the incompetence ends and the corruption begins. Um, I think Joe Biden is a political prostitute. I think the Clintons are political prostitutes, but nobody would accuse Bill and Hillary of being dumb. I mean, that they, they, they were, especially Bill. I mean, Hillary's 
intellect is probably a little overestimated, but Bill Clinton's a very, very smart, shrewd, savvy operator. No doubt about it. I don't think you'd get any argument from the most conservative Republican that Bill Clinton was a bright man, a, a very savvy man, a very capable man. Um, now, now, once again, I think their motivations were similar. How do I take this? Um, how do I take being head of this bureaucracy and enrich myself and my family? And I'm not saying that the, the Democrats have a monopoly on this. Um, I think Mitch McConnell's life would be, deserve some pretty hard scrutiny. Um, his wife has always ended up with, you know, fabulous jobs inside um, of government. And, you know, they've done exceedingly well as a senior senator from Kentucky. I mean, they live a, a pretty glamorous and, um, and, 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 and blessed life, so to speak. But, um, but with Biden, I, I just Biden's unique because I just remember the old narrative with George W. Bush. I mean, he's just not that smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether he is or not, I don't know. Don't have any idea that the intelligence of of Joe Biden, excuse me, of George W. Bush or not. But but I don't think anybody believes that Joe Biden is some mastermind, some master strategist. But Reb, he's figured out a way to get wealthy, to keep his family in good standing, and, and to stay out of jail. I mean, if he's running a criminal enterprise and we're caught accusing him of being not so bright, how does a not so bright 50 year senator end up buying a house the DuPont's owned? <laughs> and now they're plundering through what, three or four or five homes that he owns. And like it or not, he is the president. Well, I mean, he's the he president out a way. of the United States. I mean, he kind of outweighed everybody. He won by, by default. Joe, you stay in that basement and just be quiet and shut up. And this Trump guy will say enough to um, not disqualify himself, but to lose some voters. Within it. You know, I thought about this yesterday. Dave Baker put something on the National Review. <laughs> I um, did? Yeah, you put a comment on the National okay. Review. That there's, a, uh, there's the typical um, neocon argument about Trump, and it's in the National Review, and it's that Trump didn't understand the dangers of the world. I mean, he was such a kind of a simple man in a simple time, and he understood uh, economic populism. I mean, that was kind of his thing. If you really go back and listen to a lot of what, what the Democrats say today, it sounds like Trumpism. I mean, it sounds like MAGA with a D beside it. Nearly everything that Schumer says or Pelosi says or Biden says, and I'm talking about the leadership in the two chambers in the White House, I mean, it centers on economic populism, which is what Trump proclaimed loudly and proudly as, you know, government had forgotten and lost its way and was not looking after the American working class, but uh, but rather some of the international uh, corporate cartels, so to speak. But if you go back and... um. But, but but if you go back and listen to what they say and kind of juxtapose on what they ran on, I mean, it's just fundamentally different. And um, and Joe Biden has figured out a way, you know, to, to enrich his family and to, to get elected president. But but we're, we're t- I was reading something over the weekend about 81 million votes. You know, it, it was Biden giving a speech, and, and this guy's gotten – this guy got more votes than anybody in the history of American of American politics – and then you start thinking about okay, how do the how do the Republicans win? Talking about Nikki Haley is going to announce Wednesday. Tim Scott will probably announce in a couple of weeks. Now they're all auditioning for vice president. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Talk to somebody Friday afternoon who's much closer to Nikki than I am, and it's kind of a um, what what do I do other than this? You know, I mean, what what do I do? Try to take See, Tucker Carlson's job? And that actually makes some sense. I mean, looking at it through that context for for the. For the players that aren't DeSantis and Trump, that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, it does to audition for a vice president. Maybe you catch lightning in a bottle. Maybe the electorate is ready for somebody. Now, I want to see what sort of um, 
I want to see what sort of uh, agenda or platform that Haley runs on and Tim Scott um, runs on as well. But I was reading an article in the National Review to get back to your comments that you posted. Um, <laughs> you might want to explain what you mean by it because I am not posting on the National Review. No, but you're the subscriber. Right. I mean, you put it on your card. The company reimburses you. And mm -hmm. when I log on, I'm logging on as <laughs> as Dave Baker. I kind of like that. I bet. Uh, yeah, it gives me some <laughs> flexibility and, and freedom. Um so the the article was about Trump can't win again. You know, the never Trumpers, the 20 percent within the Republican Party just aren't going to vote for for Donald Trump. And I'm really trying to measure where I want to be. I mean, where, where do where 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 do I hope this debate ends up in the Republican nominating process? It's going to be very interesting as a fellow South Carolinian to have two South Carolinians in the race and not be supportive of either. Now, I didn't say that's where we'll end up. And I'll end up in a place, you'll end up somewhere else. I mean, we won't all end up in exactly uh, the same place. But it was interesting in the article, the, the, the writer, I mean, once again, National Review, kind of a neocon, globalist, interventionist, Republican worldview. And, um, and I'm not saying everything's wrong about that. I, I'm not arguing that, that anti-globalism is the best way. I'm not arguing that anti-interventionism is the best way. I'm not arguing that economic populism is, is um is the theory or the economic theory we should ascribe to and build uh, the future of the party on? That's just the way I see it. I mean, I am an anti-globalist. I'm an economic populist. I'm an anti-interventionist. Um, I'm not a big believer in American imperialism. But but once again, I'm not saying that's exactly where the party should be on all fronts. But but getting back to the article, I read the article, and it was interesting because it was negative toward Trump. It was negative toward um, DeSantis. It was positive about, you know, the fresh faces of Nikki Haley and, and Tim Scott and uh, uh, the guy, the governor of Virginia. What's his name? Youngkin. Yeah, you got Glenn Youngkin. I mean, he's acceptable to those guys. But the only two Republicans in my lifetime that have had a never movement was Ronald Reagan. I mean, there was a never Reagan movement within the Republican Party and a Donald Trump. I mean, there was a never Trump, obviously a never Trump movement within the Republican Party. There, there was no never, never Bush, never Dole, never McCain, never Romney. And, and the reason is those of us who called ourselves, we didn't call ourselves, we were ideologically aligned with the America First agenda. We just didn't know what to call ourselves. I mean, we didn't call ourselves America Firsters. We knew we weren't real crazy about all the interventions. We weren't real crazy about some of the globalist policy. We weren't real crazy about some of the, um, some of the I don't know, ref, uh, income inequality. I know that's kind of weird for a conservative to say, but I think it's, a, it's, it's, a, it, it's an ingredient in the, in the devil's brew of American politics today. So those of us who stood on certain, took certain stances on certain issues, that were a little bit different than the Bushes, a little bit different than the Doles, the Romneys, the McCains. What did we do when we didn't get our way in the primary? I mean, when Pat Buchanan gets beat by George H.W. Bush, what did the Buchananites do? I mean, they kind of lined up in yes, support of the nominee. Lying. That's right. I mean, they, they weren't crazy about the Bush worldview, but they did what good teams or what good teammates and soldiers do. You kind of, you know, I got an R beside my name. He's got an R beside his name. It's my time to pledge my support to a guy that, I philosophically disagree on some of the big issues, but he's not a Democrat. And it kind of goes back to what Mike Rickenbaugh dealt with in the studio Friday 
uh, with a senator from Charleston that he's frustrated by their vote on abortion, the heartbeat bill. And you got to understand, Charleston's not the PD. It's um, there are more Volvos per capita in Charleston. There are more poodles and um, and you know, skinny jeans on the peninsula on King Street than there are in the PD. And if that person's an R beside your name and will vote with you 60 or 70% of the time, isn't that better than a Democrat at all? But David French and and Steve Schmidt and the Lincoln Project and, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world, the Never Trumpers, and Romney only became a Never Trumper when Trump didn't give him the job as Secretary of State. I mean, that's how committed a man Romney is. I love these people who ex- describe Romney as, you know, the last great statesman kidding me i mean romney turned into a never trumper once he didn't get the secretary of state job although right afterwards he asked trump for his endorsement sure for that Senate seat. And, and his money i mean Rom- romney's not a statesman he's a politician stop with that if, if, if you're a politician you're not a statesman if you're a statesman you're not a politician mitch mcconnell tries to convince people he's a he's a statesman he's a politician who wants his way at every at every turn but but it's just so interesting to me that the only two presidents that I ever got excited about are Trump and and Reagan. And they were the only two presidents that dealt with a movement from within trying to make it more difficult for them to win the eventual nomination. Once again, um, the Reaganites weren't crazy about George H.W. Bush, but they voted. The Reaganites weren't crazy about George W. Bush, but they voted. Um, the Trumpsters, I mean, they didn't even know they were Trumpsters at the time. They weren't crazy about Romney. They weren't crazy about McCain. They weren't crazy about uh, Bob Dole, but they did what good teammates do. They supported the home team once you had a primary, a declared winner of the primary, and that just leads me to, I mean, it doesn't lead me to believe, it leads me to know that I'm right about these um, these establishment-oriented figures in the GOP. It's never been about the party. It's always been about them and what they want and how they want the party to operate and maneuver and, you know, the, the interesting question that we don't have an answer to is where does Ron DeSantis line up in all of this? I mean, we know where Haley lines up. I'm not sure I understand exactly where Tim lines up in this. Um, we know where Trump lines up. I mean, they're totally adamantly opposed to Donald Trump being the nominee. But where are they on Ron DeSantis? 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The thing about Republicans is McConnell and, and Bush both couldn't stand Reagan. I mean, Bush is the one that came out with the voodoo economics, remember? He was talking about Reagan's voodoo economics trickle down. So they were against Reagan all the way, and McConnell was against him. He, he wasn't his first three picks. But the good thing about Republicans now is Hell, there's four people that we know will probably be running, and I could vote for all four of them. You know, there's there's none of them. Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, DeSantis, or Trump. I could vote for all four of them equally. But talking about Mike Rickenball Friday, you know, it's always the, the Republicans have to go over to the Democrat side. And, you know, these courts want standing so what they should do is give them standing and pass a bill like the heartbeat bill pass it separate but 
say, all right, conception starts, or life starts at conception in the womb, because the Democrats have changed the definition of abortion. Life cannot start in in the fallopian tube and, and stay there because it will kill both the baby and the mother. So that's not conception. That's a death sentence if it goes on the ectopic pregnancy that we talked about before. So they, the court won't standing, so you pass a, a law that says life begins conception in the womb. And you pass that law and because science says that's when life starts. And then let make them vote against that bill. And if they vote against that bill, they're for killing babies. And then you can go into the abortion thing. And if if they won't don't want to do that, then take it all off and let them determine, you know, you know, it'd be between them and God. So just just let them kill whoever they want to kill because there's no help for them. But Thank you, Joe. Help. Appreciate it. Well, the, the the point I was trying to make with Mike, and I think Mike listened. Um, Mike has a very urgent opinion on abortion. I mean, he feels compelled to lead on that issue, on that topic. He's a person who um, wears his faith on his sleeve, makes no apologies for wearing his uh, faith on his sleeve. And that abortion issue is a, it's a central issue into why he wants to go to Columbia and do a job. I mean, you hear it in his voice, um, just the demeanor when he begins speaking about it and talking about it, how passionate he is about it. And he gets real frustrated with a person with an R beside their name is not as defending of life as he is. And, And what I try to express Friday is, you don't get to decide what every other Republican thinks. You just, you just don't. I mean, it's, you know, if, um, and here's where I was headed, Rev. Let's say that, that, that we, we cloned Mike Rickenbaugh and we sat him in that district in Charleston and he expressed his pro-life stance as passionately there as he does here. And he wins the primary because there are, I mean, you know, you got a, you got a big separation between Republican primary voter in Charleston, Democrat primary voter in Charleston. And then Mike Rickenbaugh wins that district in China, in, uh, in Charleston, but he's seen as an extremist in a general election. And some of the more moderate Republicans say, I, you know, I want a Republican, but I don't want a Republican with that. I mean, it's, it's their word, not mine, with that extreme position on abortion. I don't think Mike's position is extreme, but I don't live on the peninsula. It's a different mindset. And I've seen it up close and personal. When you get to the coast of South Carolina, it's less influenced by spirituality and religion. Pro-choice, pro-life is less of a consequential debate. It still matters to everybody. I don't know anybody listening to my voice that doesn't have an opinion about abortion. But but in some cases, it's number five or six or seven or eight. And and I think really and truly, and, and this goes back to what Robert Cahaley said on this show a couple of years ago, you know, we better be careful with Roe v. Wade because what Roe v. Wade is going to do is allow states to generate policy and states to enforce policy and states to have to come up with solutions to, to the problem of Roe v. Wade. In other words, when Roe v. Wade is overturned, and here's what conservatives wanted, why? Because they want to be sta- the states to be empowered. Well, be careful what you ask for. All of a sudden, Roe v. Wade's overturned. The states have the authority. You've got a Republican in, in uh, Charleston who doesn't see the world like a Republican in Florence. A Republican in Florence doesn't see the world like a Republican in Greenville. 
And there's some in, in some way, somehow, you got to conclude or resolve that we're on the same team. We may not have exactly the same opinion of this issue. But, but once again, what did Reagan say? If you agree with me 70% of the time or 80% of the time, you're my friend. And what I try to tell Mikey is, let's say you, you'll point somebody who is more pro-life than the lady that he's frustrated with in, in Charleston. But you increase the likelihood that a Democrat win that seat. How many times do you think that Democrat is going to vote with you on budgeting issues or education issues or, or, or infrastructure issues? Never. 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 And that Republican may vote for you or with you 60 or 70 percent of the time 70 percent is better than zero percent take a break back at a few eight four three six six one oh nine three seven our number let's go to the phone someone's there mike page the uh, chairman of the florence county gop is on the line hey mike hey dave hey ken hope you guys are doing well i know you're talking about politics republicans well if you want to maximize your influence and make a difference in the florence county republican party and republicans in south carolina you need to come out tomorrow evening to the McClinigan Administrative Annex on Dargan Street because every two years the Republican Party's reorganized and we get our precincts ready to go and we're going to be talking about that tomorrow evening. Come out and get yourself a chicken pot pie also. And um, But reorgs is in March the 18th next, um, next month, but we're going to be planning and preparing for it tomorrow evening. So seriously, guys, people... If you want to make a difference and you want to maximize your influence and make a difference, come on out and learn about the Republican Party and be a part of us. I sure appreciate it, okay? Thank you, Mike. Appreciate all the work you guys do. Mike Page, Florence County GOP, encouraging people to um, be some of those eyes and ears, boots on the ground, um, so to speak. We talked about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton a second ago. and um, I mean, I've read a lot about Bill and Hillary, and to me— the legacy of Bill and Hillary is, I mean, Newt Gingrich talks a little bit about this and talking about the, dealing with the Clintons. Bill in particular, he never dealt much with Hillary, but dealt, dealt a lot with Bill. Um, in retrospect, the Clintons took politics from uh, a focus on what is morally right to what can I get away with. Um, can I get away with private islands with a lot of young girls. I mean, once again, you know something stinks there. I don't care how much you love the Clintons and how much you respect, you know, Donald Trump, whomever the character is, doesn't matter to me. But I think the legacy of the Clintons, and I think I, I, mean, I think it's always been the case in politics to some degree, but I think when you start debating, when the leader of the free world, the most powerful man on the planet, says it depends on what the defi definition of is is, we're not talking about moral high ground. We're not talking about intellectual superiority. We're not talking about good ideas and bad ideas. We're talking about American politics being a case study of what can I get away with. And if it, call, if it, if it takes me redefining the word is or, or debating what the word is means, then, then I'll do it because I don't stand here as a moral and righteous man. I stand here as a politician trying to get away with as much as I can possibly get away with. I do believe that Obama was an ideologue. I mean, I think Barack Obama was a kind of a radical leftist. I mean, he was a radical liberal. I mean, he tried to call himself a progressive, but I think the, you know, Saul Alinsky and the influence. But he played more of a centrist when he ran well, I mean, for president. But, but, but he's a politician. I mean, he's a politician right. who's trying to disguise himself as one thing to get elected. But I think Bill Clinton was in it for himself. I mean, I think the Clintons have always said, you know, what's in this for me? 
You know, I mean, uh, honey, we might, we've not had as much money as all these people have asked for money all these years. But if we can, if we can uh, just hang in there, I mean, you're pretty smart. And I know I'm pretty smart. And yeah, you know where I'm heading. And the next thing you know, Riz, we're rationalizing taking a hammer and busting up cell phones. And, 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 and hiring a company, what's it, Bleach White or whatever, White ble- what Bleach it? Bit. Yeah, Bleach Bit. I mean, the company that says, I mean, you know, 33,000 emails that were literally, you know, just wiped clean. And then she jokes around. And, you what, mean like wipe it with a rag? Yeah, well, I mean, but, but once again, I think their understanding of politics, I don't think the Clintons looked at themselves as moral crusaders. I think Obama looked at himself as a, kind of an, uh, an idea lot. A, a, a messianic ideologue. I mean, he's there to tra- transform a nation. I think the Clintons were there to get whatever it is they could. I think the um, I think the Bidens were there to get whatever it was they could. Um, I think the Bushes, to some degree, because of their investments in um, some of the globalist affairs of America, uh, the Cheneys and and Rumsfelds, and you know so, some of the um, some of the influences of Bush forty three were very neoconish. I mean, you'd have to agree with that. Cheney and Halliburton and um, and Rumsfeld and some of these other operatives that were very influential in George W. Bush's. Um, I'm thinking about in my life. Reagan was somewhat of an ideologue, right? I mean, the Reagan Revolution centered on conservative uh, principles, conservative government. Obama was somewhat of an ideologue, a liberal, um, you know, just a five-star liberal, a raging liberal who had studied and was versed in the rules of radicals and Saul Alinsky and some of the, I don't know, Rev, the, the, the Marxist policies. and um, but, but I think when you look at the Clintons and, and the Bidens, well, the Trumps to some degree. I don't want to say they're grifters, but, but they, they, they don't profess to be more moral than anybody. And I think the American democracy, I, I, think, I think legitimate behavior has to be demonstrated in positions of power and influence if you're going to be taken seriously. And and I think, once again, we've lowered the standard and, and we've allowed, um, and once again, Trump pretty well investigated. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I tell you the Sunday morning shows. So I'm watching the Sunday morning show and James Comer, who was chair of the oversight committee investigating, you know, what Biden did or what Biden didn't do or how close Hunter Biden uh, was. There is no reasonable person listening to my voice that believes that that Hunter Biden offered Russia, China, Ukraine, or any other foreign country because he was good at business. But there's not a single person listening to my voice with an IQ north of 100. Now, if it's less than 100, okay, you're struggling. Um, but, but north of 100, if Hunter Biden gets a call from Russia or a Russian company or China or a Chinese company or Ukraine or a Ukraine company or any other foreign country for that matter, Nobody believes he's getting that call because he's good at business. I mean, there's nothing about his life to, to I mean, he, and, and he got a lot of money from these co- countries. And if not because he's good at business, then why? Well, I mean, well, you know why. <laughs> I mean, it was a, um, I mean, it was to influence his father, who was then vice president, soon to be uh, president or had a chance to be president at some point in time. And, you know, three carat diamond ring from Ch- the Chinese government. I mean, imagine that. Here, Hunter, I mean, we think you're such a spectacular advisor and board member that we want to give you this three-diamond ring, this three-carat diamond ring. And the point I'm trying to make, Rev, is about our system of government, to me, our system of government is becoming corrupt. 
And I mean, it's always been loose and fast. It's always been, you know, this group has its list of, of favorites and this other group has its up. But I mean, the, the, the basic honesty has to be, I mean, I think somewhat of an ingredient and maybe that's what we're looking for, the, re, the reassertion of basic honesty and, and lawfulness if we're going to, um, to save our democracy. We asked earlier, you know, if we were to go to war with China, and I have no idea what that war looks like. I mean, is it weapons flying from, you know, across the Pacific? I don't have any idea what that war looks is, like. Is it balloons floating it, over our, our airspace? Is it balloons floating into Alaska, you know, um, dispersing? some sort of chemical agent. I don't have any idea what that war looks like. Is it, you know, infiltrating some of our intelligence community? Is it buying off, you know, the, the, the siblings of powerful people in government? I don't have any idea what that war looks like. But are we equipped to win a war against a very committed foe in, the, um, in, the, in China, the Chinese Communist Party? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I know this. I know we've shot down four unidentified flying objects, right? I mean, we know that to be the case. Since last, since the middle of last week, we've shot down on separate occasions four separate unidentified flying objects. The White House has been deathly silent on that. John Kirby from the uh, Department of Defense has said, basically, um, we've got this under control. We're, uh, we're updating. We are monitoring. I mean, all you would expect somebody like Kirby to say, but, but nobody from the White House, the president historically has spoken on Super Bowl Sunday to the news agency broadcasting the Super Bowl. If, if it ever made sense for an American president to address the public, it would have been yesterday, right? Yep. I mean, historically, I that, think so. Well, I mean, historically, the president has sat down with a member of the media of the network broadcasting the Super Bowl. That's kind of the, um, I mean, it's not, it's not, obviously it's not mandatory, because he didn't do it. But but you've got the White House just mom just saying absolutely I mean, it would have been an opportunity, especially well, in light of it. the circumstance. Well, I mean, it, it would have been a perfect time for Joe Biden to say, look, I know Fox isn't crazy about my way of, uh, of doing politics. And to be honest with you, I'm not real crazy about their way. But there's some moments that the American people deserve to hear from their president. Super Bowl Sunday is the largest audience of any day in television. So I know I've got more people watching me and listening to me right now than I ever have or ever will. And I feel it important to update the American public on what, what, you know, the questions they have about what's happened the last four days, but his people don't trust him enough to give him free reign. I mean, I guess you could have sent him out there with a script, you know, it had some um, cataloged way of answering the questions and that guy freaks me out. I mean, it freaks me out that I mean, who would have likely at Fox been the uh, the interviewer? Brett Bear, probably, probably Brett yeah, Bear. Yep, Brett Bear. So, and and he's, I mean, he's fair. I mean, he would have been probably direct, and there would have been some follow up questions. He's the president. You got to be direct with the president. <laughs> exactly. You ask very direct questions and expect very direct and accurate answers. That's what presidents do. That's why they get the job. They're equipped to handle those sorts of circumstances. So you got Brett Bear before the Super Bowl. You got what? A hundred million people watching. I mean, he got five times the. I mean, I think American Idol had twenty million. You know, some of the highest-rated TV shows have twenty million. The Super Bowl has a hundred million people. So you got a hundred million people watching. The leader of the free world explained why they've taken the action they have over the last four or five days and put the American people at ease. 
You may not like the answer, but at least you know with clarity exactly what we're dealing with. Is it weather balloons gone bad? Is it spy balloons? Is it aliens? I mean, is it, a, is, it, is it Elon Musk's grandfather and great-grandfather from, I mean, Mars? I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? We, we deserve to have some sort of result, I mean, conclusion. I mean, tell us what it is you think we're dealing with. But we got none of that. Instead, we got a president who chose to break the norm, the traditions, and not sit down with a member of the media because he doesn't have the ability to coherent, coherently explain what it is the American people suspect. We suspect, or I do, I can't speak for you, Reb, I suspect it's Chinese spying operations. Mm -hmm. And and I suspect they've done this hundreds of times, and we're just kind of becoming aware. Maybe we don't spend enough on defense. Maybe if we didn't leave $88 billion or $7 billion, depending on which report you believe, uh, worth the fighting equipment in Afghanistan, maybe if we weren't spending $100 billion in Afghanistan, excuse me, in in Ukraine, we we could be more equipped to deal with what sort of... um, data gathering spying apparatuses make their way onto um, our into, into our mainland United States. I, you know, th- these are questions that deserve answers. And I think Brett Baer w- would have asked those questions. But here's the problem. Joe Biden can't answer a question unless somebody's written a sentence down for him. That's who we're dealing with. And an 82-year-old man is going to run for president again. He's 80 today. He'll be 82 when he runs again. And the, the average life expectancy in America today is in decline. It's about 76 or, or 77. And the reason it's in decline, a couple of things. You ready? Fentanyl. For every 21-year-old that dies of fentanyl, guess what it does to the average life expectancy in America? I mean, it, it significantly declines. And, and we've had hundreds of thousands of 20- and 21-year-olds die of fentanyl. That pretty much makes its way across the southern border. The lion's share makes its way uh, over the southern border, as Biden would say, the secured southern border. Huh. Who believes that? Nobody. But once again, the media has a degree of power. How much? I don't know, but a degree of power to change the observable reality. It's kind of interesting. The Democrats will come on television and say the border's secure, while Fox is showing, you know, just a, a mass invasion of our southern border. But 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 Joe Biden chose to not engage the American public. The day after, for four consecutive days, we've engaged some foreign adversary. Is it of this planet or not? I mean, I, I suspect it is. I don't think it's aliens. I mean, some do. I mean, I read Twitter yesterday. Some of the very responsible opinions on Twitter say, you know, it's about time we admit that we're not here alone. I, I don't know if we are or not. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if it were some sort of Chinese spy program that is toning the American government, daring us to do something. Because, guys, China monitors what we do. They keep I mean, they keep good tabs on our behavior and what we're doing. And when we appoint somebody as, you know, one of the military leaders of our nation is a dude who wants to be called a female, I mean, they, they make a mark of that. I mean, they know America's in decline. They don't know how much America's in decline, but China, the Chinese leadership, and the nonsensical, silly things that we do as a nation, China's well aware that we're in decline. And I'm not talking about who sang at the Super Bowl. I'm talking about who's leading our military and how politically correct and woke, uh, you know, they intend to be. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back in just a few. I did see an Economist YouGov poll this weekend 
that said 70% of Americans somewhat or strongly oppose any change to Social Security. Senior voters, believe this, are opposed 81%. Republicans, 64%. Professing conservative voters, 66%, somewhat or strongly oppose Social Security revisions. Where do you go? I mean, to me, that's a complicated. It's not just about Social Security. It's about American government in, in general. The American people have expected a certain thing out of our government. The government can't deliver uh, without going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And we had the debate last week about petrodollars and the dollar being the preferred currency. Long as, there, as long as we're exchanging oil for dollars, there will be a global demand for our debt. I mean, they're, they're, you know, that's just kind of our, that's our ace in the hole. That's our silver lining so to speak, as bad as it may look, as long as we're exchanging the purchasing of oil for dollars, petrodollars, that gives us a distinct advantage in the affairs of global finance and, and how much debt we can go in. But there's already some scuttlebutt, some of the other nations beginning to trade Russia, China, the Middle East in particular, the likely suspects, India, I think has been at the table in some of these um, discussions. So you got a an entitlement program going broke. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's going broke. That there is not a fundamental, there's not an encouraging fundamental in all of um, Social Security. More people getting older, more people living longer, fewer people working, paying in, more people retiring, drawing out. I mean, there, there's not a single encouraging data point when it comes to Social Security. Combine that with the realities of where the poll or what the poll says, wh- where do you go from there? I think Rick Scott's the only honest broker in Washington. And McConnell said that's the Scott's plan. And all the other Republicans have distanced themselves from Rick Scott when he says the program should sunset. He's the only guy being honest with the American people. And he may lose his job in Florida running for reelection. A lot of retirees in Florida. And Mitch McConnell will do Rick Scott no favor. I can assure you of that. I mean, if they could find somebody to oppose him at a primary. But, but how do we, the people, how do we resolve that? I mean, if we believe that we're entitled to this benefit, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the mathematical realities, how do we address that? I mean, the liberals don't care because the majority of them believe in this modern monetary theory anyway, and we'll just, you know, we'll tax um, passive income as earned income, and, you know, the, the capital gains will go to the same rate as uh, the income tax rate. I mean, they, you know, it's all about generate more revenue. Billionaires the play their fair share. Well, I mean, it, what they're basically saying is $5.03 trillion just ain't enough. I mean, we got to have more and more of the private sector's funds. And I, and I guess, Rev, they'll, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the wealthier, the easy target. You know, they're not paying their fair share. That's always been uh, c- kind of rooted in liberal reality, or they think it's rooted in liberal reality. But, but we have a dichotomy. I mean, it's a problem. It's an issue. And, and there's no easy answer. So, so who on the Republican side has the guts or gumption to look the American people in the eyes and say, you know, we, we've blown it. I mean, we've made a mistake. I didn't personally blow it, but we together have. Democrats and Republicans have refused to address the mathematical realities. And here we are. And the only way you're going to get anything is if we, you know, if we um, reform or modify some of the uh, plans and procedures today. And uh, Rick Scott doesn't want any part of that data. I can assure you. I mean, Rick Scott may very well lose his job as senator in um, in Florida because, once again, there are a, a plethora of retirees in Florida, and he's the guy. I mean, look at the number. 
of seniors don't want to monkey around with Social Security. And Rick Scott says to the seniors, I'm not talking about you. All Rick Scott is saying, if a piece of legislation has been on the books for five years, it needs to sunset. Any legislation, all legislation needs to sunset after five years, and Congress needs to vote on it again. And if Congress votes on Social Security as is again, then they'll just be reluctant to deal with the financial realities of what's of what's headed our way. 843-661-0937. But 70% of Americans somewhat or strongly oppose any change to Social Security. We've got to be a more serious people than that. Uh, the math just doesn't work, period. And I think we could do a week's worth of shows if we were adults and responsible and mature and wanted what's best for America. We could come to grips with this reality of what doesn't work and figure out a way to create a formula or um, or pro forma that moving forward does address some of the uh, some of the issues within. 843 Six six one oh nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Held on during the break. Let's go there. James in Timmonsville. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, what I was calling about was the Social Security and Medicaid fund. Uh, it's the biggest kitty in the United States. Uh, what about the million people that died that paid in on that stuff? Thank you, James. Appreciate it. I just think the system, I mean, how, I mean, we as an American people, I mean, and I'm going back to the numbers. I mean, 70, 70% of Americans don't want anything done to Social Security. How many, what percentage of that 70% know nothing about the actuaries, know nothing about the data, know nothing about the realities of it? Let me tell you. In, in layman's term, because I don't want to get into the weeds. I mean, it gets real confusing about, you know, transfer funds and uh, outflows and inflows and whatnot. For a long time, Social Security had more money coming in than going out because we had an ass of people working and not a lot of people receiving <laughs> the benefit, and they were dying before they got, you know, 72, 73 years old. The life expectancy all of a sudden goes 72 to 76 or 8 or 9. I think at one time before COVID and um, the fentanyl or the opioid addiction, the opioid epidemic, we kind of had two epidemics. We've had COVID and we've had, you know, the opioid epidemic. And that's put a pretty, I mean, I think it's down about two and a half years. In the last decade, I think life expectancy in America has declined by somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half years. But if you've got a lot of young people dying of opiates, 21 years old, I mean, that really has a monumental impact on the um, the life expectancy uh, of the average American. And then you've got COVID. And, you know, you got more and more 70-year-olds dying or 72-year-olds dying because of complications from, from COVID. We never said COVID wasn't real. We just questioned whether the young people needed to be vaccinated and whether they were at imminent or in imminent risk or at imminent risk in imminent danger i still believe they weren't i don't think young people were ever high risk and i think if you're a younger person and you haven't been vaccinated you made a better decision than if you're a younger person and you have been vaccinated i stand by that comment i don't think that's a controversial comment at all i think it's a very credible comment um but but you've got a you've got a you've got a, a government program 
that has more going in than coming out. You've got, what, 11 and a half workers per one recipient. The one recipient's eligible to 62, lives to be 72. So, so it's a sustainable model. All of a sudden, we make medical advancements and the average life expectancy goes from 72 to 80 or 79. That's seven more years the average American's living. The number of people paying in goes from 11 and a half to about four and a half. The number, I mean, remember the, the, the workforce participation rate, guys, 62.5%, right? Really about 62.1% of all working age eligible Americans are going to work every day for FTEs, full-time employees, only about 62.1%. I saw some numbers, Rev, um, I, one day last week, the projected number this year is going to be 61.7%. So of all the people that are eligible and able to go to work, only about 61.7% are going to work. So instead of 11 and a half people paying in per recipient, you've got about five. I mean, I've seen it six and a half. I've seen it as low as four and a half. But somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on what survey you believe or what research you believe, and now all of a sudden you've got more going out than coming in. You don't have as much money going in as going out, so we're drawing off the fund balance. When you hear Social Security being solvent by 2030, 2035, 2037, a lot of these projections but that, that's the reality. Now, now, I'll tell you this. Because of the opioid epidemic and because of COVID, the, the, date, the, the insolvent date for Social Security is, is about a year and a half out longer than it was because people that were going to draw Social Security for a long time, I think we had a million deaths because of COVID, somewhere there about, in the neighborhood of a million people who died of COVID. I mean, the, the majority, the overwhelming majority were older, but they still died. I mean, they're still off the, the Social Security roll. You probably got spousal benefits and some of the others, but it, it was a cost savings. That's hard to say, but it's the truth. You know, the older people that died because of COVID saved Social Security some money. But but all of a sudden, Rev, you've got billions and billions in fund balance because you had more going in than coming out. And all of a sudden, you got more going out than coming in. So the fund balance is dwindling to the point that it will be insolvent. So in about 2032, 33, 34, 35, there won't be enough money coming in to meet the obligations for the money going out. Once again, there's not enough coming in now, but you've got this fund balance to draw off of. Whatever we're short, so to speak, you can go to the fund balance and, and take whatever surplus you need to make sure everybody's made whole. Well, we're quickly getting to a place where there's not going to be that fund balance. Whatever comes in is what it is. It is what it is. And that's when you're going to see about a 20 to 25% cut and Social Security benefit, unless the government says, uh, you know, we'll borrow whatever it takes to make it hold. I mean, maybe that's the, the strategy moving forward. Maybe the government, in its infinite wisdom, says, we don't care what the data looks like. We don't care what the actuaries are. And you can go to Social Security Administration's website, and they have actuarial summaries where they kind of explain this the best they know how. I mean, it, it, there's nothing positive about any of the data. Every data point uh, relating to Social Security is negative. Every data point relating to Medicare is negative. But, but, but Medicare is different. We don't know what the anticipated health care cost of Dave Baker is going to be. We don't know that. We know that there's a good chance Dave Baker is going to draw, start drawing Social Security at 67 and he's going to live to be 80. I mean, that's kind of the actuarial model. We, 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 we have no idea. Is he going to get cancer? Is he going to have three heart attacks? Is he going to be strong as a bull and climb Mount Everest? I mean, we don't know that. We have no way to accurately estimate 
what what health care is going to cost for Dave Baker, I say we have no way. I mean, of course, we have some presumptions, and we do run actuaries, and we have models that predict what we think Dave Baker, but it's far more inexact than Social Security. So we've got a government program going broke that 77% of Americans don't want to touch. 81% of seniors don't want to touch. How can we be a serious people? How can we be a permanent superpower when we have the government afraid to tell the American people the truth and the American people unwilling to want to hear the truth? You'd rather a government official lie to you and tell you everything's okay and your Social Security will be there when you turn 67, 70, 72. It's not going to be there. If there aren't lucky leprechauns, fart nuggets of gold in the Social Security Trust Fund, that's just not the way it works. And that's discouraging to me. And I think we had a uh, somewhat of a um, fruitful conversation last week about, you know, the do's and don'ts, the ins and outs, the ifs, the ifs and ain'ts. It is going broke. And it's going to cause a monumental problem to those of us who are depending on Social Security to do what, Rev? Subsidize. I didn't say pay for. I mean, I think if you're looking at Social Security as an income replacement, that you're going to be you're going to be terribly disappointed and you're going to sit on the couch and watch TV a lot, not go anywhere, not do anything. Why? Because I don't have any money. Why don't you have any money? Because I decided not to go to work. Why did you decide not to go to work? Because I paid into Social Security all these years and I thought that was going to replace my income. It was never designed to replace your income. It was designed to kind of help you along as you got older and weren't able to work quite as much. But, but the, the insanity is... We've got a program going bust. we got one politician who says, we need to deal with this. And he's the guy that's going to lose his job probably. And every member of his party kind of disowns and disassociates <laughs> themselves from him. Rick Scott is the only honest broker in Washington when it comes to Social Security. Let every program sunset. That includes Medicare. That includes Social Security. That includes Medicaid. And let's get back to the appropriating process and let's look at some of the data, some of the data points, and let's decide what we need to do to address it and let it stay on the books for five more years and then come back five years from now. Because we can, we can fix it. You know what we can do, Rev? We can raise the eligibility age of people under the age of 50 to 73, 74, whatever that number is. That There's something called a spending curve in some of these actuarial models and summaries and you start bending the spending curve in a more positive way. So, so if you've got if you've got people retiring at 62, 65, 67, all of a sudden you got people retiring at 67, 69, 72, I mean, it stands to reason. Instead of having a 10, 11, 12, 13-year period of time you're collecting Social Security, you're only collecting it five or six or seven years, plus you're working another three years on the front end. So if you give up three years of retirement income, or Social Security benefit, and you work three years longer to pay into it, but I mean, it's pretty reasonable to expect that gets it back on solid footing, but we don't want to hear that because politicians like being Santa Claus, and we like getting free stuff. Well, Ken, it's not free. I mean, I paid 6.2% of my income all of my working life, and my employer matched that 6.2 with 6.2 of their own. That's true. That's true. But if there's not any money, there's not any money. And, and we're quickly depleting the fund balance to the point there's not going to be enough to subsidize what comes in 
what goes out. I mean, it's a when I say it's a quasi-Ponzi scheme, the only reason it's a quasi-Ponzi scheme is there's still money in the bank. I mean, Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. I mean, if Dave Baker called Bernie Madoff and said, hey, I want my million dollars back, Bernie had to go find it somewhere. I mean, he had to get some other guy to commit, you know, a million dollars so he could take that million, not invest it, but give it back to, to Dave Baker. He's revealed to be, you know, a, a con artist. By the way, if you're interested in that story, that Netflix uh, Bernie Madoff documentary is pretty good, and it really explains how it went down in the timeline. Very interesting. I'll tell you, it's the and best terrible. I've seen. It's, and, it's the best I've seen. And, and the whole thing is terrible. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a warped sociopath. I mean, he, he really and truly is to do what he did. And, um, and, and I mean, there's no way to get out of that. I mean, it's billions and billions and billions of dollars. 843-661-0937. And it's just discouraging to me to see the data, the polling on Social Security. How many of you know that it's unsustainable? I mean, all I hear from people, really smart people, I paid in, I want what's due me. Okay, you paid in. You deserve what's due you. What if there is nothing in there? I mean, what if it's depleted? What do you got two and a half workers paying in for every one retiree? And there's no money in the uh, in the trust fund, well, which is basically a fund balance. And it's not, I mean, it, we call it a trust fund. It's not a trust fund. It's kind of a clearinghouse, in essence, is what it is. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Chesterfield. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, fellas. I, you know what gets me? Alec Murdoch is facing hundreds of years in prison, not not about the murders, about the money that he has allegedly stolen from his clients, from his firm, and, and uh, you know, just rip, rip people off. And he's facing hundreds of years, if it goes to trial, if it gets that far. But the government has, is obviously stealing from every, every taxpaying citizen in the country, and no, nobody's held accountable for that. They just say, well, the money's gone, so you're going to have to sacrifice, you're going to have to suffer some more. Somebody needs it. Head needs to be on his chopping block about this stuff, and that's about all I got to say. Thank, Thank you, you, Jeff. See, I've always argued with some of my more liberal friends. I mean, even the conservatives that don't think we need to mess with the the entitlements. Are we committing financial crimes or not? I mean, if the if the if the data is as clear as it can be. Once again, Medicare is a little more confusing because everybody can all of a sudden decide tomorrow I ain't eating no more high fructose corn syrup. I'm eating seaweed sandwiches and drinking Celsius. I'm doing what the guy on the radio said do. I'm taking better care of myself. It ain't going to happen, but I mean, there's a hypothetical chance that is going to happen. You know what? You know what? We're not going to change. If your birthday is February 23rd, it, it's like that every year. That doesn't change. You either get older or you die. The, the, the unknowns of health care, it would be hard to pin a financial crime on government because you really don't know. You're speculating. Now, you are speculating on how many people die. But, but you aren't speculating on how many people are going to have birthdays and when they're going to have their birthdays. I've told this story. I had a guy that worked with us in truck body manufacturing business. One of, the, one of the greatest answers I've ever heard anybody give a benefits coordinator. My brother and I decided we were going to share some of the prosperity of the business with our fellow employees. So we, um, we had a benefits coordinator come in talking about health care and 401K and profit sharing and all these other sorts of things. And he convinced us we could afford to do it. So we came up with a modified... Um, profit sharing plan, health care. Uh, we interviewed every, we couldn't do it for every single employee. So we had to figure out a way to pick and choose. Cause we had, we had 20 or 25 that were just, just top shelf. I mean, they, they were there every day. They pulled more than their weight. 
And then you have some that aren't quite as noble in the calls. You know, they didn't quite pull as much weight as you needed them to do. Um, if they had a headache, they'd miss two or three days. So you kind of had, ah, what am I trying to say, Rev? Like like, kind of like a key man in your business, key man policies and whatnot. Sure. Well, the, the benefits coordinator said, hey, if you want to do it not for everybody but for only some, here's how we got to do it. So we, you know, we did what he said to do. Anyway, we're sitting down in the office one day, and I was kind of um, bringing employees in one at a time, uh, maybe sometime a couple at a time. I brought one of my guys in that had been with us about 15, 16, 17 years, very good employee, very dependable, very motivated. And um, the benefits coordinator's at the table. I'm at the table. This guy sits down. <laughs> the benefits coordinator says, okay, what's your name? He says, uh, John Doe. What's your birthday? February 22nd. What year? Hell, every year. (laughs) 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 And I just thought, how much, I mean, that's the greatest answer ever. I mean, it's 1,000% honest. What do you mean? It doesn't change. I mean, I don't have a birthday one year in February. The next year is in June. My birthday is the same every year. Well, I mean, Medicare, I mean, excuse me, Social Security takes that into uh, account. I mean, you know, Dave Baker is going to die or he's going to turn 58. He's going to die or he's going to turn 59. He's going to die or he's going to turn 60. We have no idea how much health care, you know, problems Dave Baker and what 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 it will cost Medicare. But but there's a there's a 78% Dave Baker is going to live to be, you know, 83 years old. And at 83, he would have cost us this much money. So we know we have a very understandable model with, with Social Security and we know it doesn't work. And I think Jeff makes a very interesting point. At what point in time are politicians so deceptive that they're committing financial crimes? If a politician tells you, I'm not touching Social Security, it's off limits, and it will be there for you when you need it because you deserve it and you paid in it, and I need you to vote for me. I mean, at what point in time is that so malicious or or intentional, intentionally misleading that it's a lie that, you know, that, that kind of, I mean, I'm not talking about Alec Murdoch or, or Bernie Madoff. I mean, what they did was just, wow. I mean, how do you even consider doing something like that? But I do think there's a legitimate argument to make about whether or not our elected officials are committing some degree of financial crime. Let's go to the phone. Okay, nobody's there. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Back when John Mellencamp was known as John Cougar, there was a line in the song, there are things I know and things I don't know. I know that Social Security will not survive if we don't modify in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what we're shooting out of the sky. (laughs) I mean, I absolutely do not know what it is we're shooting out of the sky. And they don't know or they won't tell us. Well, I mean, you know, we we, it, it leads to, I mean, we're a very skeptical public today. We're very cynical in our, um, perception of government, I think this adds fuel to the fire. Fox News Radio's Grinnell Scott is in New York. Grinnell is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am good, and unfortunately, I probably won't add much clarity to your show this morning. <laughs> well, we are we are counting on you to provide all the clarity <laughs> that we need. What is going? What is the latest on the United States shooting down? I'll just say objects from the sky. Well, if you're scoring at home since February fourth, it uh, February fourth, it's four. Uh, the one that uh, was shot down off of South Carolina that I'm sure you're aware of, and uh, the last three in the last three days, the one over Alaska on Friday, the one over the Yukon Territory in Canada Saturday, and the one yesterday over Lake Huron in Michigan. Now, 
as far they seem pretty sure that the the one off of South Carolina is a Chinese spy balloon, and uh, the recovery effort is still underway for that. These last three, um, from what we have learned from the Defense Department, not maneuverable craft, uh, very s- much smaller than the the balloon off of South Carolina, and. Uh, the pilots that shot them down, they did not get a very good look at them, so it's going to be based on what we find out after the recovery of those things. So they may very well be um, weather balloons or some kind of privately owned something, but again, until we get our hands on it and understand what they are and what they were doing up there uh, from twenty to 40,000 feet uh, where the uh, the radar spotted them, We'll have to find all that out as, as soon as we get a hold of them. And, Gernot, we, we expect the Department of Defense to be our communication point from there. A lot of people are disappointed the White House has not engaged the public to explain to some degree whatever they can, uh, but it looks like DOD will do this. Is that is that something we should be willing to accept as normal? Um, yeah, and, and until it gets to a point, and, and there, uh, we I've heard, some people talk about, okay, why isn't Homeland Security dealing with this? And I think if it becomes an ongoing threat, Homeland Security will jump in. But as far as the, the objects being up there and getting them down from the sky, that's a that's a de- Defense Department thing all day. And the main thing that the Defense Department is concerned about, like we said, twenty to 40,000 feet these last three are, and that's in uh, – uh, civilian travel airspace up there, and they say these things are a danger to that. So that's why they wanted to get these things out of the sky uh, and 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 see what they were. Again, they may just be weather balloons or weather uh, devices or something like that. Again, there's a lot we don't know right now, and, and, and we have to get our hands on them to, to find out exactly what they were. Well explained. Thank you for your time, sir. Absolutely. It's kind of interesting. I mean, the word threat assessment comes to mind. You know, I wish somebody from the government would say, we've done a threat assessment. We believe the biggest threat were they were in what we'll call commercial aviation. Uh, in I mean, commercial aviation is, what, thirty to 40,000 feet, uh, depending yeah, on what, yeah, what the jet streams are and what the wind currents prevailing forces are. These um, unidentified flying objects who were not uh, self-propellant were in, um, I, I guess, Rev, in the um, in the airspace that commercial aircraft fly. And the last thing you want is a, um, you know, a 747 full of 250, 300 people running into a uh, balloon that causes some sort of um, uh, event that leads to a loss of life. Is that the only threat assessment or... You know, are they weather balloons or are they operated by by China? I mean, I think there's a lot of suspicion out there among the. Uh, we, we know amongst, they'd be up there to. I mean, you could presume they're up there to gather information. What kind of information? Yeah, I mean, it could be weather gathering information. Could be. Um, I mean, I've thought of this. It could be so some of these advanced, uh, not ham radio operators, but people who are real advanced and. I mean, they're, they're private organizations doing a lot of research on climate change. And you know some of the uh, some of the jet streams and wind currents and and prevailing forces, as we said a second ago. You know, is it a private company that that has the ability to do these these sorts of things? What sort of um, what sort of notification does the government need to know? I just don't buy for a second that the government has no idea. I mean, for the life of me, I just 
I mean, that, that scares me more than thinking it's a Chinese spy balloon, the fact that the government doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, right. it, I mean, believe Chuck Schumer if you'd like. Um, I don't. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, Ken. Uh, so, you know, we, we all agree that there's an issue with Medicaid and Medicare. We have to start thinking a, a little bit outside the box. But uh, is Rick Scott really the guy we should turn to? He's the only guy that has offered up a serious proposal as far as I'm concerned. And he's not been specific yeah. to the entitlements. He just said when a, when a government program sunsets in five years, Members of Congress should vote it in or vote it out or modify or adjust or, or recalibrate. I don't think that's unrealistic yeah. or unreasonable. Well, I mean, I, I just if, – if you don't talk about believing Chuck Schumer, the one thing you can believe is Rick Scott is one of the biggest Medicare fraud perpetrators in U.S. history. People go to jail for Medicare uh, fraud. Yeah, not if you're Rick Scott because you, t- you, you take the fifth – 75 times during a deposition on a $1.5 billion Medicare fraud claim in Florida, and uh, and they elect you governor. I mean, it's amazing. So you uh, think Rick Fraud is guilty of Medicare fraud and skirting the responsibilities of our legal system? As, as the CEO of a, of a health care system in Florida, absolutely. Okay, that's a, that's, that's a pretty big charge. So, so the government's yeah. letting him walk. Yeah. That he did get off. I mean, like, but that, that's it, what I'm it, saying. It, I mean, you're, you're saying you're, you're saying the government did not prosecute Rick Scott like they would have someone else. Uh, you know, absolutely not. Like uh, he, he look at his history and where he made his money. But I, I did want to call and ask you about this. Okay, um, do you know what the second largest federal agency by expenditure is in the United States? <sighs> second largest. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all over a trillion. Um, well, ser- service agency. to, well, I mean, uh, agency. Uh, health and human services? Uh, the VA. Okay. Okay. The United States uh, spends about $370 million a year on the VA. Now, what are we doing for that? Are, are we going to have austerity measures with that? Should we be cutting those benefits or extending, like, how they get treatment? Well, I mean, money's a limited resource, right? I mean, we don't have an infinite amount of money. So it's some... But, but, I mean, so so do we want to, do we want to cut the VA and the, the veterans' benefits? Well, I mean, are you arguing that you think the VA is run as as, as, um, as tight as it could be run? I mean, I, I don't buy that. No, uh-huh. No, I, I mean, well, the VA can do things Medicaid and Medicare can't. We know that. For the first time, we've allowed Medicaid and you know to to actually negotiate prescription drug prices. Correct. Before that, it was illegal. Correct. Okay, so so we are making changes, right, to line up because the VA does some smart things. They have a hospital system. They have a, a, a private payer system if, or, 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 you know, a single payer system. But we don't have that in the medical system in the United States. Right? I, I don't think you've ever heard me defend health care in America. I don't defend right. it. I think it's okay. indefensible that we spend, what, 18% of our GDP on health care related expenditures? I mean, that, that's, that's gross and egregious. 
We've allowed yeah. Big Pharma, the insurance companies, the healthcare providers, to lobby government to to, to basically um, be an anomaly to the rest of the world. I mean, nobody in the world, nobody in the developed world, spends a, as a percentage of GDP the amount we do on healthcare, and we don't have the, the best healthcare system in the world anymore. No, we 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 do. We no, no, we do if you can afford it. Uh, okay, I'll give you that. Like, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yes, I mean, like you know, our our medical care in the United States is phenomenal if you can pay for it. But the majority of people are funneled into certain elements of our system that aren't the best in the world because they can't afford it. I agree with that. Totally agree. Right. So, so there there are things to look at there. And as far as um, Social Security. Look, I know we agree that you raise the cap, you eliminate the cap. Um, but if you look at the the actuaries and you look at the bubbles of the the baby boomer generation coming in, it is a bubble. It will once we crest the the baby boomer generation. If you look at the numbers, it straightens back out. You. Have you looked that far ahead? Yeah, but that, that, that's a big, big – I mean, I get the macro arguments you're making, and there's some out there that believe if we can wait out the boomers, and the boomers eventually die, we've had a decline in birth rate. But but it's still life expectancy, and I think it, it's a little bit – I mean, I, I just can't agree with anything that does not suggest that people are going to live longer, and we've got to raise the eligibility age from 67 to 69 – from 69 to 72, whatever that number is. And I, that's why I support Scott. Let's put Medicare and Social Security back on the table and, and let's not make adjustments for people over the age of 55, but anybody under the whatever the number is. I mean, I don't know what that number needs to be. It might be 45, might be 40, but there's a number out there somewhere that you've got to agree the future does not look so bright. I get the argument you're making about declining birth rate, and the number of people will begin to decline probably in five or six years. I think there's 10,000 people today right now turning 65. I think that number goes to 9,000 and then 8,400 and then 7,800, and it becomes a more sustainable model. But but I just think when you look at the long-term life expectancy of a developed nation like America, you you, you got to raise the eligibility age. Okay, and, 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 you know, they, they've done that, and, and, you know, as you've talked Not about, as aggressively as I think they need to, Jeff. Right. Let, let, me, let me ask you this. So, Rick Scott's plan, are you okay, and just a quick, you know, smell check here, so you're okay if the VA ends up in the same bucket as Social Security and Medicare? No, not the same bucket, but I, I am okay well, why if— Why not? Well, I, I'm okay if the governing legislation of the VA is put back on the table every five years— I'm okay with every government program sunsetting after five years and new legislation to govern that government program is instituted. I am absolutely 100% emphatically supportive of that. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a gimmick. Um, just like when they pass a tax cut, tax cut sunset, but guess what happens? They always extend them. Like, you know, it, it, it's just a... Uh, it's a it's a it's a funny math uh, type of answer. It's not a solution. But you so, so you don't like the idea. It no, solu- it, it offers no solution. What do you mean, don't recognize? But, but we right? certainly. What I mean, it offers a chance at a solution. There is no chance at a solution if we don't put it back on the table. If a government program never sunsets, there is no chance at a better solution or outcome. 
if a government program does um, sunset, at least we've opened the door to visit or revisit the construct of the deal the government made with the private sector. Because in essence, that's yeah. what that's what policy is. Right. But y- you know that that's not really necessary because, like you just acknowledged, we've changed Social Security already. And it hasn't had a sunset window, right? Yeah, I mean, you can. You, we can change it anytime we choose to change it. Okay, uh, so and we have, right? Uh, we've modified. We made adjustments. I don't think they're anywhere near as aggressive as they should have been and need to be. But but you don't need this sunset window to change the system because we do it all the time. We, we do it all the time. I like the idea. You don't. I do. I like the idea of every government program implemented sunsetting after five years and Congress having to vote on that same exact government program again. I like that idea. So so I'm going I'm to put you on record as saying, like, you're okay with the VA being cut in five years. I'm okay with the VA sunsetting and, be, and, and being revisited every five years. That should scare everybody who's a veteran. Well, it, it may. But but I'm not going to mislead. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Um, I, I, mean, I think what should scare the VA is not revisiting to put something in place and just allow it to run on autopilot until we run out of money. And we may never run out of money, guys. I mean, modern monetary theory may be a practical reality of this newfangled finance. I just don't buy it. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. I'm going to say something real controversial, but I'm doing it at the 9 o'clock hour. I don't want to Ooh. do it right now because okay. I, I want people to have a, ch- a chance to chew me out. Because I'm going to say something. I've always believed this, and I'm willing to say it. Most of you, uh, I mean, it's living proof that I'll never run for office again. Let's go to the phone. Uh-oh. Someone's there. Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. I just want to say I, I am absolutely for things sunsetting in five years and being reevaluated. But I cannot believe Social Security and the VA are even being compared. I mean, you know, I want to know. How many people who never serve their country are benefiting from the VA like they are with Social Security who never paid in? How many illegals are benefiting from the VA like the masses of illegals that are benefiting from Social Security? So to compare the two are ridiculous. And that being said, I'm still for every five years, absolutely evaluate everything. And you know my opinion of eliminating Social Security within five years, all, all welfare in five years gone thank you bird appreciate that i mean i just think we're i mean if you if because you've got a military budget and, and va spending how many how many soldiers how many members of the armed forces actually engage in battle how many what percentage of the armed forces see combat up close and personal should a desk worker in the United States Army have better access to health care than a truck driver from Pamplico? I mean, I understand those who engage in battle. I mean, I get that. I mean, I certainly understand. Um, but, but the majority of military are areas of supporting units. I mean, 10%. I mean, I read it a year or so ago. I read it again during the last break. About 10% of the entire military force engage in some sort of battle. I mean, you look the enemy in the eye, so to speak. Um, 40% of service members do not see combat at all. Of the remaining 60%, only 10 to 20% are deployed into a combat premise. 
Plus, the majority of those members enter the arena as supporting units. I mean, once again, I respect and admire and appreciate more than you'll ever know the American men and women of armed services. But I also appreciate truck drivers, and I appreciate factory workers, and I appreciate roofers, and I appreciate, you know, people who go to work every day outside of the armed forces. So, so why is it that we can't cut anything to do with Veterans Affairs or Veterans Administration or military spending, but we can slaughter the private sector? Damn that truck driver and that nurse and, and that, that construction worker and that roofer. I mean, they'll be okay, but, but we got to do it. No. I mean, if we're wasting money in the VA, let's cut the waste. I mean, if we're, if we're investing too heavily in our military industrial complex, Raytheon can do without a little bit of our taxpayer dollars. Honeywell, McDonnell Douglas, Boeing. I, mean, I think you got to put all that on the table. Absolutely all that on the table. And it's, and it's no slight at the men and women who serve this country. I mean, I respect, admire, and appreciate everything those people have ever done. But how many of those, the, the, the simple question is this. If you are a veteran and you never engaged, never came close to seeing combat, I mean, do you deserve that much better health care than a truck driver from, from Lake City or a factory worker from Johnsonville? I mean, I, I personally, I don't think you do. I mean, that, that became your job. That's your career. No different than a job or a career in the private sector. And, I, you know, the ref says, man, don't go down this road. because I mean, it can be easily misconstrued. And once again, I appreciate, respect, and admire the men and women who have kept America safe and free. I am forever beholden and indebted. But, but I'm not so indebted or beholden that I'm not going to question the way taxpayer dollars are spent at providing services and benefit to those who serve this country. That's insanity. Take a break. Back in a few. And there's several things I say over the air that prove I'll never run for office again. <laughs> there's a handful of things that politicians just cannot afford to say. In fact, when I talk to Mike or Jay or Philip, uh, I'll say, hey, you can't say that. Let me say that. I mean, you can't say that. You, maybe the way you feel, but you can't, you can't express yourself um, but sometimes flamboyantly. You, you even get close to the edge there where I feel like I need to jump in and say, oh, OK, like man. what? I mean, explain yourself there. I mean, you, you, you've heard me say that before. And every time I've said it, you, you've opened that door and said, dude, I, I just feel like I got to defend you when you well, I don't, say those sorts of things. Because I know you don't want to be perceived, first of all, as saying something that is critical of you know combat veterans. Right. Not at all. And, and but but it can be perceived that way. Veterans in general. I mean, I, I respect. All veterans. I mean, just just because you're not a combat veteran, don't you make that make you less of a combat veteran? But but I, I do believe that that. I mean, I'm not saying somebody sent me a text a second ago, and they're right. You know, the the veteran doesn't receive better health care. He receives much more affordable health care. I, I do believe that that we have gotten to a place. I'm not saying we we idol worship. I'm certainly not insisting that. And I think people who serve in the armed forces and serve honorably deserve. They're due. I can just debate what their due is. And I mean, if, if you went to, if, if you are a combat veteran and you're disabled, then obviously you deserve some preferential treatment within our government funded health care. Of course you do. But, but what if you enlisted at 18, you never saw a gun fired. You sat behind a desk, you earned a living, you made a good living, you get a pension retirement and you get to participate in a health care plan that saves you a lot more money than a, a truck driver from from Lake City or a construction worker from from Johnsonville. Um, I, I just think there's a fair debate to be had there. 
And, and I'm not diminishing the value of our men and women who serve in armed forces. I would never do that. That's absurd. I've told you one of the um one of the insecurities I have in my life is being around veterans, knowing I haven't served, and knowing that a lot of my you know life's blessings come as a result of those who have served. But 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 I I just think we got to be careful in not not looking at these as too fundamentally. Why is it? Why are, are we basically saying that the person who answers the phone uh, in, in an office complex with the military is of more value than the person who drives the truck every day and delivers the product and goods that we consume every day? I mean, our our, our healthcare system in America has kind of said we do because one gets better benefit, more benefit than the other does. And I think that is a very interesting debate. Now, it's one that politicians don't have because you want to be, you know, very respectful of, of uh, here's what I'll say in conclusion. You ready? I want to be unbelievably respectful of the men and women who served in armed forces. I want to be equally as respectful to the person who drives a truck every single day for 30 years and was proficient, efficient, um, productive, on time, did everything. I mean, that, that person deserves just as much consideration as the other person. Now, combat veterans are different. Somebody who got their eardrums exploded or their arm blown off or their leg blown off. I mean, of course, that's unique. That's very unique and different. But when we say veterans, 10% of all veterans engage in direct combat. That means 90% do not. That they, they serve this country admirably. They've done a tremendous job. But, but is the job they're doing that much more important than the job everybody else is doing in the private sector? I think there's a fair debate to be had. There. Let's go to the phone. Jeffrey in Scranton. Good morning. Uh, how's it going, guys? Hey, Jeffrey. Uh, Ken, if it makes you feel any better, it's just one man's opinion, one veteran's opinion, but I 100% agree with you. Um, I ride with a nonprofit veteran's organization. Um, I have brothers who very much, they came home. They're, they're not the same people. They, they had to leave a part of themselves there to survive. Um, I've made a personal choice. As a veteran myself who didn't see combat, I have never used uh, VA benefits in any way, shape, or form, and don't plan to. I absolutely do agree that our men and women who have gone overseas and put everything on the line do deserve uh, a little bit more than the rest of us. And uh, with that, I'll leave you guys to it, man. Thank you. That's somebody who served. I I mean, see, I'd love to know what they think within. I mean, does a veteran believe that the veteran who served in combat duty and had some sort of, um, you know, life-changing injury, do they need to be looked at differently from a healthcare perspective than, you know, the guy who logged 30 years as a, as a Marine, a, a, you know, member of the Air Force? And, they, and once again, I'm not doing this to disrespect. I mean, it, you, you know me better than that, Rev. You, you, you've, seen, you've seen the emotion when some of these honor of vets, when we have the honor of vets and some of these people walk into our, our studio, they're on crutches, they're on a cane, uh, we, we had a kid come in one day and it looked like half his head was blown off. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching to see those. But those are combat veterans. The Veterans Administration, do, here's a better question, and I don't know the answer to this. Does the Veterans Administration distinguish between combat veterans, those who have had life-altering injuries, and the guy who logged 30 years behind a desk? And I'm not diminishing the value of that work. I mean, that, that's got to be done. So, I mean, you know, the, 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 the military is a big, complex endeavor. I mean, it's government-run, government-organized, government-orchestrated, but it's a big, complex business. Keeping America safe is a, is a big, big, complex
complex business. What we need a lot of people doing a lot of things, I would imagine. But when we say veterans affairs and are we going to cut the budget, let me ask you this. If I said, Reb, I'm not for cutting the budget at all for combat veterans who have dealt with life-changing injuries, but I do believe we could consider whether or not to treat the, the person who answered the phone for 30 years in an office complex any differently than a truck driver from Lake City or Johnsonville. I mean, you're sitting here not, you're yeah, going like, okay. I, I mean, I, I think I, that's I get, fair discussion. Yeah, everybody went to work. I mean, every, you know, he went to work in an office complex as a member of the American military. He went to work as a truck driver for a, uh, for a trucking company in Lake City, South Carolina. But this person over here, this person over here was a combat veteran. I mean, they're one of the 10% that came eye to eye with someone who wished to kill him. I mean, yeah, you better believe. Hell yeah. That's a different and unique set of circumstances. But are the other two really that different and unique from one another? Let's go to the phone. Dave in Bennettsville, good morning. Yeah, I think it is an entitlement, and it's for all militaries. They do get more be better benefits than us working, and we actually do provide a service. Hat, but you ran the numbers. 10% are, are involved in combat. The rest don't. They don't do the job. They don't provide anything. They don't provide a service. Cut them. It's an entitlement, just like Social Security. And those that say it isn't, it is. Believe it or not. And I'm not saying that to be mean. It's reality. Thank you, sir. Well, I mean, and the question was, I think Jeff said, would you ever be in favor of, of cutting the Veterans Administration or, or the, you know, the, the Veterans Health Care System? And I said, well, I mean, money's not infinite. I mean, there, there is no, if I'm, a, if I'm a member of Congress, there is no way in Hades that I would agree to cut the benefit of the 10% who have seen combat. I mean, the, the combat, there is no way in this world that there is nobody that could convince me we need to make cuts there. But, but the 90% who have not been intimately involved in combat, there's only so much money. The VA gets its allocation of funds. I think Jeff said $300 million. It's actually $300 billion or somewhere thereabout. I mean, he, he misspoke. I misspeak a lot. I mean, I know what he meant. A million ain't baby crap alongside, you know, <laughs> right. in, uh, in Washington, a million yeah. is kind of like chump change. Know. You know, a million? Really? A million? $300 million? I Not mean, even worth talking yeah, about. I mean, it's millions. a billion. And sooner or later, it'll be trillions before... Uh, we know it, right? But but and 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 Rev says, man, I you, you, when we go down that road, there's just so many places to get entangled, so many places to get uh, in trouble. These are the conversations that I think America must have at some point in time. Now, now Jeff's arguing from a more liberal perspective than I am, um, and he's kind of trying to pin me down by, by saying, okay, so you would cut veterans' benefits? Answer: Yes, I would absolutely cut veterans' benefits. If I found we had waste, fraud, and abuse in our Veterans Affairs, our Veterans Administration, whatever it is that funds the the, um, the promises we made to our men and women who serve in the armed forces. Let me ask you this. Um, when a veteran retires, not, not a combat veteran, but we're talking about the 90% who don't see combat. When a veteran retires from the military, why do they, why do they deserve a better retirement than you retire with the private sector? I mean, let's, let's think about that for a while. That's a fair question. Well, I mean, it's a very fair question. And, and it's not disrespecting the men and women. We don't have a draft anymore. So the men and women who signed up to be members of the armed forces, guess what they did? They decided on their own volition not to be a truck driver from Lake City, not to be a construction worker from Johnsonville, but rather to be a, a member of the armed forces. I am grateful. I am forever indebted 
that a certain percentage of our country decide to do that. Thank God there are men and women who are willing to do that. But do they deserve a higher degree of entitlement because they do that than you going to work in the private sector working 30 years? How many, uh, how many government, excuse me, how many private sector workers today are, are getting a pension? I mean, you talk about, you know, or, you know Jeff was talking about the, um, the macro. I'll tell you another big macro you're going to see that, uh, that Jeff didn't mention. So he's talking about, you know, the baby boomers. And eventually the baby boomer generation um, kind of plays out. And, and we're having declining birth rates. Families are having fewer kids, fewer people to get married. They're waiting longer to have children. Um, what, what about, well, I mean, this is kind of a weird way to look at it. But what, what about... Well, I mean, I don't even have to say it without being too offensive. And I, you know, even I have certain limitations and certain guards. Yeah. (laughs) What just happened there? I'm not even doing that because that would, um, that would be, yeah, that that would be Howard Stern like offensive and I'm not, I'm not going there. Oh my goodness. I don't want to lose a third of our audience. I'm just, um, (laughs) I'm just one comment or remark. 843-661-09. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, I, mean, I see, but I, I, I like the gig. I mean, yeah. I, you know, we've been on the air for 10 years and we're about to launch a podcast. I don't want to get on the, um, I don't mind being on the endangered list. I don't want to be on the extinct list. I mean, we, we bounce in and out of the endangered list. I just want to be on the, um, the extinct list. 843-661-0937. And by the way, I could be convinced that we need to spend more money for combat veterans. Okay, I could probably be easily convinced. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that money. program is set up. I know that they, uh, President Trump tried to make some improvements in the, in the VA benefits, but I could be convinced. Looking at, to anyway to look at it, you talk about sunsetting a program or reevaluating a program every five years. You could easily convince me that the combat veterans need more and better benefits. Okay, let's government. go back to the macro because Jeff was talking about the macro of turning sixty-five. You've got a certain percentage of our nation that receive a pension. I mean, that's in dramatic decline. That's in free fall. We, we, we have less union labor, less organized labor, less collective bargaining, uh, just less right to organize. I mean, right to work states. And South Carolina's kind of made a name. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it, it's really lured BMW, Boeing, Volvo, um, so, some of these major companies like coming to South Carolina because we're a uh, right to work state. It's hard to organize and become um, labor union or union labor as a result of that. But, but, what percentage of private sector workers are guaranteed a pension? What percentage of public sector workers are guaranteed a pension? I did a show a year or so ago and, and argued that one of the great conflicts in American society was going to be when the when the government worker retires at 60 years old with a pension and the private sector worker retires at 70 with Social Security and no pension, that there's going to be kind of a, um, wow, how, how can that be? How do we square that up? And we almost pit one one group of people against against the other, um, especially when you think about the government. How does the government generate revenue, Rev? They tax the private sector, right? Yep, so, that's, that's so, the only place. So if a pension in the public sector is funded, guess what it's funded by? Private sector dollars. So you've got a um, an increase in public sector pensions and retirements You've got a decline in private sector pension and retirement. I mean, do you really believe that that's going to not create some sort of societal angst or resentment one toward the other? Of course it is. You've got fewer and fewer and fewer people working in the private sector with a guaranteed pension. You've got more and more working in the government with a guaranteed pension. 
The guaranteed pensions of the public sector workers are funded by what? Taxpayer dollars. I mean, how do we believe that doesn't build some degree of resentment, one class toward um, the other, or one workforce toward the other? Let's go to the phone. Cliff in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I just wanted to make a quick statement. I am a veteran I'm from Vietnam. I have lost my hearing in my left ear. When I got in, it was, they were killing about four to 600 a week. Um, whenever you go into the service, you are not have no guarantees that you will not end up in a combat situation. Uh, wherever the need is, is where you will go. And the first thing they told us, the first training you get is to be able to uh, protect yourself and, uh, and, and that you get that in basic training. So for those veterans that have done that, who have made that decision and, uh, to go and serve, uh, not only are they paying the price for not knowing where, where if, when and if they have to go in combat, but in addition to that, you, you have a hard time being, if you do stay in service, you have a hard time being able to um, develop um, what you have as that truck driver because you can be stationed anywhere in the world. So it's not only you that make the sacrifice. It's also your family. Well said. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. And I'm not trying to pit one group against another. I, I just think these are interesting conversations. And if I believe talk radio is the last bastion of independent and critical thinking and people can agree to disagree, and maybe we don't even disagree here. We're just hashing out some of these things that are taboo and, and, and forbidden to be spoken about. I mean, if you're a politician, a Republican in particular, you better never say anything questionable, not derogatory. Forget that. You better not even question some of the, um, some of the virtues of American, of the American. I am a, a conservative Republican who believes we spend too much money on our defense budget. I'm one of the few that will say that. Now, if I were thinking about running for governor in two years, guess what? I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'd play a game with you like the rest of the politicians are playing a game with you. But, but I, I think it's liberating. I mean, I know it's liberating for me to sit behind this microphone knowing there is no voting public I'll ever be held accountable to again. And, and let's stir up some of these conversations. And let's hear from someone who says, as, as, as very eloquently as the last caller did, that I didn't know where I was going to be a year from then. I didn't know whether I was going to ever be in combat or not. Th- th- those are very interesting points and perspectives that I think add flavor to a debate that most people say, I'll take a pass on that. I don't want any part of that. Let's go to the phone. We have Bob, who's from Charleston, driving up I-95 listening this morning. Hey, Bob. Good morning. I have two questions, two comments kind of off the beaten path this morning. Number one is Richard X from Treasure, South Carolina. Uh, Sounded like he went to the Murdoch School of Accounting. Um. How do you lose $2.5 billion for 10 years? Three and a half. Uh, three and a half, whatever it was. Um, does he need his job, or should Henry do something about that? That's my question there. And the other one is Nikki Haley running for some other office. Uh, wasn't she involved with a newscaster, news producer from Columbia area? More than her husband, maybe. I have heard that. <laughs> I'll, I'll let that be. We'll, we'll, we'll flush. Thank you for appreciate the call. We'll, uh, we'll flush that out during a presidential campaign 
I would imagine um, a lot of that was when I was in Columbia. Rez asked me a hundred times. I remember I, the story. What, what do you know about that? Nothing. Not a thing. Don't know anything. <laughs> I can't confirm nor deny any of that. Mm. So I sent a, a text to a good friend of mine um, close to the state's finance. I'll just leave it there. Close to the state's finance. I'll read it verbatim. Uh, here's my text Saturday morning at a uh, Saturday afternoon at about three 30. I said, I'm hearing this three and a half billion is much more than a clerical error. He responds. No, this is a, it's an accounting problem. Only it does not affect anything than what we do overstating the assets of the state. That's kind of interesting to me overstating the assets of the state. The state operates on tax revenue. So, so basically you, you've got, you've got, um, You've got an estimated amount of revenue. Remember talking about the balanced budget amendment. You've got an estimated amount of revenue coming into the state, and, and you're able to spend up to that estimated amount of revenue. Now, there's some rounding off done at the end of the year, but from what I'm gathering, because I was concerned about this, because it didn't sound, I mean, that, that, nothing to see here. Uh, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, nothing to see here. But but it overstated the assets of the state by $3.5 billion. Now, now here's where... I think it does lead uh, to eventually some problem. Um, the state has a bond rating. That bond rating is based on the proper accounting of the assets, not budget revenue or revenue projections. In other words, if we're bonding money, we're bonding money on the balance sheet of the state. So if the balance sheet of the state has been inflated by $3.5 billion because of some clerical error, um, how do you issue new bonds? How do you issue new debt? Do you get the same um, credit rating? Do you get the same interest rate if you've overstated the assets by $3.5 billion? I don't know the answer to that, but that's my question. Now, I'm getting in the weeds a bit. Remember, the $3.5 billion was not a revenue misestimation, but rather an asset misestimation. In other words, it said the state was worth the balance. I mean, it's like a business. The balance sheet of the state was inflated by $3.5 billion. Well, if the balance sheet is inflated by $3.5 billion, the state could borrow money at a cheaper rate but because it looks like it's healthier than it really is. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, let's say it's $47 billion or $50.5 billion. I mean, some bond rating agency will look at the, you know, the asset sheet of the state and say, wow, I mean, they've got $50.5 billion in assets and only you know, $30.5 billion of liabilities. Now, I'm making these numbers up. I have no idea. I mean, I would imagine the balance sheet of the state is higher than $50 billion. Whatever that number is, it was inflated, but it was not a misestimation of revenue, but rather the asset statement of the state of South Carolina. And the only concern I have, and here's where I get in the weeds, is what if you go to bond money and you're bonding against the asset or the total valuation of the state as a whole, do you get the same bond rate? Can you borrow the same amount of money? Um, the Joint Bond Review Board, how does that factor into this? I, once again, I'm getting into, I mean, I kind of operated state government for a little while, so I understand some of that. I don't have clarity to that, and I'm trying to run somebody down that does. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, I'm going to level with you. I was sluggish the first couple of hours. Uh, during the show, we have some decent content, but it's kinda, Monday, the day after Super Bowl. I guess, That's I your, mean, you have an excuse. Well, I mean, it's still our job, though. It's our job to be ready to roll as soon as we get here. True. But I sat down this morning, not very motivated um, to talk about politics and the goings on of the world around us. Normally, it takes a couple of hours. 
to get in the flow, get in the routine, get in the rhythm. I got to believe the majority of you were probably um, struggling as I was. Couple, What is it about Super Bowl? I mean, my wife wakes up yesterday morning and says, what time does the game start? I said, when have you ever gave a damn about a football game and what time it starts? Well, I might want to watch the halftime or some of the commercials. You know, I want to see some of the commercials. It's the Super Bowl. Well, I mean, it's the Super Bowl. I found this interesting. Um, And actually, we touched on it earlier this morning. There is nothing more obnoxiously masculine than football, right? I'm the biggest, fastest, strongest men on the planet trying to just run into one another and get the best of one another in a, in a physical match. So, I mean, it, it reeks of toxic masculinity, right? You, you and I believe that the majority of legacy networks are, are operating on a woke, politically correct worldview. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know the exact number. 31 of the top 33 uh, network broadcasts were football games. The majority were NFL but there were some of the um, college football playoff and, and bowl games, even a, um, let's say, a, a Red River shootout between Oklahoma and Texas. They promote it. So 31 of the 33 top network broadcast were football games. So you've got a woke, politically correct newsroom and boardroom at some of these um, legacy networks. And I'm talking about ABC, NBC, CBS. Is Fox now a legacy network? I would imagine it is. I mean, it's been around a long time. It would um, it would be the fourth of the big four, so to speak, CBS, ABC, NBC, and Fox. So 33 of their top-rated shows, 31 were football. They hate masculinity, right? I mean, they, they, they hate men being men and women being women. Yeah, they seem to have a problem with it. But they have a price. They've not taken football off the airwaves because if if, if those networks didn't have football to sell, they'd probably go under. If football ever streamlined, I mean, if, if football ever becomes kind of an a la carte streaming service, the networks are probably done. And, and we'll, you and I will live long enough to see that. We'll see the demise of NBC, CBSA. I mean, they, they, they'll come out in some other iteration. I mean, it'll be NBC Digital or CBS Streamed or whatever. I mean, they'll figure out a way, like the Washington Post online or the Wall Street Journal online. But I mean, they, they'll evolve. They'll adapt. They'll survive but they'll be shadows of their former selves. In other words, the 30-story building in New York City will be a 10-story building in Provo, Utah. <laughs> but it'll still be CBS. They just won't be the dominant media force that they have had for, what, 100 years-ish, somewhere thereabout. I mean, the television era began in the, ah, it would be 100, probably be 70, 60 or 70 years. The television era began in the 60s. Can we agree to that? Yeah. So you got 40 yeah. years and another, so 60, 65 years of the television era, but you've got, um, you've got a, uh, the, the, the legacy networks, depending on the, the obnoxious, toxic masculinity of football, keeping their heads above water. So when the board gets together at CBS news and they begin to talk about the business model and they say, we lost money on this show. We lost money on this show. We lost money on these six shows. Where did we make money? Our news department is in shambles. Yeah. And and then somebody says, well, where did we make money? And they'll say, turn, turn to page eight. And they'll turn to page eight and they'll say, that's football. (laughs) So, well, I mean, that's, that's the only place we've made money. America is infatuated with football and it's not the strategy. It is the gladiator. I mean, there's something about Americans that they're like these gladiator like competitions and the Super Bowl kind of um, culminates 
the entire football year. Uh, Rev said last week that there, there, there are several dates. I mean, if you're a sports fan like I am, I have no idea when the end of winter is. I have no idea where the end of spring is. I know that the Super Bowl means that, that the Daytona 500 is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. The Daytona 500 means that spring is right around the corner. And the Masters, I don't care what day spring starts. Spring starts down south the first day of the Masters. Masters week is the beginning of spring. The Daytona 500 this coming Sunday, kind of um, because it's in Daytona. It's warmer down there, obviously, in Florida. It's uh, mid to late February, and it's kind of interesting how the sports fan sets his seasons apart. Memorial Day. I mean, that's the race in Charlotte, Rev. Well, that's the beginning. Right. I, don't, I don't know the beginning. I don't have any idea what the calendar says. <laughs> forget the summer equinox and winter equinox and yeah, all these. That's the beginning yeah, of summer. Yeah, forget that. I mean, that, that's but, but the thing. You, you throw in a couple of other benchmarks in the sports world. You have March Madness. Okay, that's a big deal. And then you have, in, in fact, this week, pitchers and catchers report to spring training for Major League Baseball. Then baseball's around the corner. There's your there's your summer sports are getting ready to get started. Well, let me ask you this. How many people watching the Super Bowl last night know that pitchers and catchers report? <laughs> me. Well, I, mean, you, I do. That's I mean, me. I, you know, but you're, you're big. I mean, you're a sports fan. I'm a sports fan. So, And you're a Braves fan in particular. Yeah. So, um, I mean, is it more or less than 20%? I mean, once again, my, more my, my wife wakes up on Sunday morning and says, what time does the game start? My wife normally wakes up on Saturday morning saying, are we going to the game? <laughs> do I, do I have does to go to the like game? That? Yeah, yeah I mean, kind of, sort of. You know, she she implies that. I have to go to that game again. I mean, do we have to go to Gamecock Bark and watch all that 2001 nonsense and Sandstorm and all that good stuff? I mean, really, do we have to do that again? I mean, we, we, I said, we do it seven times a year. Yeah, but it seems like 70. It seems like oh. we do this 70 times a I year. I say we were doing it at my house this weekend. We were watching YouTube old Gamecock games on YouTube. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what old game in particular? Uh, the Missouri game and all the rain from a few years mm-hmm. ago. Do you I remember, remember that, that one? Oh, sure yeah. they do. Sure they do. Yeah, that, that was the one. So um, so did you have a Super Bowl party? Nah, no. Just a, f- a few of us. I made some nachos and ate way too many of them. Okay. But, <laughs> Rev yeah. said he had to walk around. Oh, yeah. I, I did well last night after the game. So I stayed up, watched the entire game. I didn't, and it's what ten something at that point. And I had stuffed myself with those nachos so full, and I said, I just can't, I can't get in bed. So I took a walk around the neighborhood. So that's just the way I handled it. Good deal. Good and, deal. And Breeze called me this morning and said that was the right thing to do. Well, so, so you you um you abided by the Breeze health yeah. and wellness plan. Yeah. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I can I can imagine why there weren't a lot of takers. On the veterans, you know, um, what should veterans be eligible for? Should we um, should we fragment the veterans? In other words, should we have a um, a veterans administration program for combat veterans and another veterans administration program for non-combat um, veterans? And and I'm not trying to do this to demean or diminish what veterans have contributed to society. I'd be crazy to do that. I mean, that'd be one of the most nonsensical and ridiculous things in this, that I could ever do or say. In this context, we're talking about government spending and whether or not we look at everything the government spends money on, right? Well, and Rev, I think eventually we're going to be forced to look at everything the government we spends should. money on. Well, I mean, but we don't. I mean, we, we just simply do not. Well, so, we, we had one senator, what, Rick Scott? Rick Scott. Suggest that, and he gets called out by the president during the state of the and union and his own party 
Them I too. mean, Mitch McConnell said over the weekend, when I asked about the plan, he said, that's Senator Scott's plan. That's not the Republican plan. Well, McConnell knows the math doesn't work. McConnell knows the numbers aren't sustainable, but McConnell wants to get reelected. I would imagine, I mean, he's 80 years old as well. That's when you start a political career in Washington. Um, and I, it was interesting, Chris Christie yesterday on um, This Week with George Stephanopoulos was talking about who runs and who doesn't run. He doesn't believe the field will be as crowded with Trump. I mean, he's, 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 he didn't say this, but, but he all but said it, it'll be interesting to see what DeSantis does. In, in other words, if Trump, if Trump has a crowded field and his ceiling is 37%, I think it's higher than that. It might be 37% some of the other in some of the less conservative states. But I think in the states that call themselves conservative states, Trump's ceiling is probably closer to 50%, might be even 55 or 60 in some of these uh, in some of these places. And if DeSantis doesn't get in, then, then, then Trump's ceiling stays that high. But if DeSantis gets in and takes away some of the support of Donald Trump, how do you divvy up the rest? And I think what Chris Christie said, it might have been someone else on the um, on the power roundtable that said it's an audition for vice president. Because I believe Nikki's going to announce Wednesday. I think Tim announces probably mid-March, maybe earlier than that. But he's in Iowa now personally. And, and I believe this, Rev. I think Tim has more appeal nationally than, than Nikki does. I really believe mm-hmm. that. Um, I wouldn't disagree. I, th- I think there's some concern that former Governor Haley, former Ambassador Haley, has tried to be too many things at too many times, and Tim has been kind of what he is. And um, now, is that presidential? I don't think so, but I think he's auditioning to get on the short list for a Trump or DeSantis VP pick. And I think whomever Trump, I mean, especially Trump, because they were talking yesterday about um, about Biden changing VPs. Not not Kamala Harris, but rather someone else, maybe a, a Buttigieg. But but then you think about it: if the most dependable voting block in republic, excuse me, in Democrat politics is African American females, and you replace an African American female, you better replace it with another African American female. Stacey Abrams c- kind of comes to mind, but um, but you're going to vote for a guy who's already 82. I mean, the oldest president prior to Biden was Reagan. Reagan left office in 77. We're going to vote for a guy to begin a four-year term at 82 years old. The VP's got to be a significant—I don't, I don't think people vote for a VP. I don't think they ever voted for a VP. But when you vote for an 82-year-old guy to begin a term, you got to think about the VP because the average life— I mean, he's already outlived the average life expectancy in America by a couple, a couple of years. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. David in Florence, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Hey, David, how are you? Good. First time caller, first time caller. Ken, listen, I am a veteran. I, I got uh, drafted 1962, served till March of 1964, got out of high school. Um, there are different benefits, special benefits for combat people. And I was non-combat. I got drafted during the, uh, the buildup uh, with Khrushchev, and I was in during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, my benefits at the VA, which I'm a VA veteran, um, are different than people who served uh, in combat and who have Purple Hearts. They get more or different benefits than I do. Um, I still have to pay um, a $15 deductible for my primary 
$50 for my um, specialist, and I still pay for my prescriptions, which are $7 a prescription, because of my income is a little more than you could get if you didn't, and also that I was not combat. Now, um, I have to go all the way to Columbia for my doctors, and it's like about a hundred and about 150 miles, I think, round trip for I. So I've been I've been lately going downtown uh, to McLeod, and I'm actually getting my care cheaper downtown than I am going to the VA. Um, but what's happening here? There is there is different there is different um, medical done through some of the veterans who served in combat. Interesting. Thank you for the heads up. Well, I mean, that, that's interesting information, and um, and I would have never known that had we do, had we not begun the conversation. So there's a veteran calls in and says, you know, I do get benefit, but it's not the exact same benefit of those who served in combat or were injured in combat. I would imagine, and and once again, I'm not I'm not diminishing the significance, nor importance, nor contribution of non-combat veterans. I mean, it's absolutely essential that we have people doing the job other than being in direct combat with an enemy. But but how are they treated differently is something that I've always had an interest in. And how are they treated in comparison to folks who work in the in the private sector? Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. It's Jamie. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Ken. Good morning, Dave. Um, just real quick, I wish, um, and I know it won't happen, but if Nikki wants to continue her political um, aspirations, man, she needs to run against Lindsey. She would beat him hands down, and she would serve South Carolina so well. Um, but um, my other thought is tomorrow is um, Valentine's Day, and I wish the listeners, and I've got one, would call in with some funny dating stories. I think that would be a fun thing to do tomorrow. And that's what I got to say. Thank you, Jam. Appreciate that. Yeah, the, the floor is yours. If you want to call in tomorrow and um, tell a funny dating story, we'll certainly put it over the uh, over the airways. Um, <laughs> there you are. Jammy's suggesting show features. Thank you, sir. 843-661-0937 is our number. Pepsi of Florence is our sponsor on Monday and Friday of our trivia question. Uh, the correct winner, the correct caller, gets um, six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of text Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Patrick Mahomes won his second Super Bowl last night. Well, the Chiefs won it, but he was the quarterback. Tom Brady won seven, more than anybody ever has. Name one of the two quarterbacks who have more than two, more than three, but less than seven. 843-661-0937. I guess what I'm asking is, who has the second most Super Bowl wins as a quarterback? 843-661-0937. Do we have a call? Hi, you're on the air. Know the answer? Terry Bradshaw. You're right. Terry Bradshaw and Joe Montana both won four each. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Uh, T.C. Fowler, Florence. Okay, T.C., thanks a lot for listening. Hang on. We'll get you today, Baker, in just a couple of minutes. 843. Well, I didn't give the number now. We're about to get out of here. But, um, yeah, John Elway, one, two. Peyton Manning, one, two. Eli Manning, I think, one, two. Uh, Troy Aikman, one, three. Ben Roethlisberger, one, two. Roger Staubach, one, two. Bob Greasy of the Miami Dolphins, one, two. Bart Starr, one, two. It's kind of odd here. Jim Pluckett, one, two. 
Super Bowls with the um with the Oakland Raiders. And yeah, they're, they're Patrick Mahomes now wins too. So um and Mahomes is a young guy. I mean, he's a young guy with a good team. As long as Andy Reid stays there and builds an offense around the skill set of Patrick Mahomes. I mean, I'm not saying he'll win seven, because you got to really, really play a long time to win seven Super Bowls. But Mahomes probably will end up winning as many as either Stallback, excuse me, as um uh, Montana or or um Terry Bradshaw for each. I'll make a prediction. You ready? I think by the end of the of the end of his career, Patrick Mahomes will at least have four Super Bowl wow. championships. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.